0: all today is <clears throat> Wednesday September 21 another one for the record books um, that was one of my all-time favorite songs um, I didn't know where to play that or uh, freak out by was it chic uh, anyway I also you guys are lucky I um, I did rewrite the lyrics for the song but I didn't have time to uh, post them and worse, even better, you don't want to hear me sing. That's just not a good idea. But I'm, I, maybe I'll post them later. We'll have a lot of fun with this. Great to be back. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, I disappeared. Um, I thank all of you for inquiries, what I'm up to. If uh, the recently announced launch of uh, the NoPTF next week, if that meant I was canceling all future Twitter spaces, far from it, um, the NoPTF was inspired by these spaces. So don't worry. For better or for worse, we're going to keep doing these spaces. I went off <clears throat> Excuse me. I went off and I rode my bike. I was in Europe and um, went on a back roads trip. First time I'd ever been on one. It was a lot of fun. <clears throat> so here we are, another day in paradise. Great room in, in store. Uh, a good friend and no stranger to these rooms, Tony Greer, is going to uh, bestow his wisdom uh, on us. And I see you've got a fantastic lineup. God, oh my God, I'm looking at who we got in the room today. This is just incredible. Just take a look, ladies and gentlemen, of, of the lineup of speakers we have here. So this is going to be an unbelievable room. I'm, I'm feeling it. I don't want to um, dissect everything Jerome Powell had to say. I think Fed watching, frankly, is a waste of time. I think the Fed's almost irrelevant. They're following. They're not leading. Um, although my listening of it couldn't help me make me any more bearish than I was before, if that's even possible. Um so, you know, the trend remains the same as far as I'm concerned. Stocks represent um, continue to offer <clears throat> return-free risk. That's my opinion. <clears throat> I'm sure not everyone in the room will agree with me. And, I by the way, I have no idea what Tony's going to say. But that's just my own two cents. Um, Tony's a much better trader than I am. And our good mutual friend, Tommy Thornton's in the second row. He's a much better trader than I am. I'm not adroit enough to uh, call these zigs and zags. I just try to stay with trend. And the trend has been, uh, you know, pretty clear. It's funny. I look at my Twitter feed, probably when I'm feeling it, and I'm tweet- tweeting at bearish stuff, it's probably an intermediate bottom. But the flip side of it, what I really like is when I get these nasty tweets from people. They just dunk on me. You know, the market rallies for two weeks after I have gone down for three months. And they're like, hey, George, you're an idiot, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't mind disagreeing, but do they have to be so profane and so nasty? Like, Seriously? At any rate, I don't think some of those – and, and by the way, it was around mid-August when those tweets reached a crescendo, and I screenshotted some of them. So um, I think at the Nuremberg uh, trials, we may retweet out a few of those things, although I'll probably be accused of trolling if I do that. Tony, you're laughing. What do you, say? What do you think of Tony?
1: Uh, I love it, George. I love your intensity. That's all I can say. I love your intensity. Um, I, I can tell you that your absence, like as a 30-something-year tape, tape reader – you know the absence of george noble hits you in the head like a frying pan so i don't we you and i don't even have to speak but when i'm on fin and you're on vacation after a couple of hours my spidey senses are like where the fuck is george noble like what's going on here you know what i mean so that's why i reached out and it was perfect timing you were just getting back and i wanted to talk about markets because i'm getting back to work after the summer so where do you want to start man
0: well man Take it wherever you want. Let's let's just let's just uh, yeah, <clears throat> let's just yeah. spitball and go with it. And we got a lot of smart cookies and mutual friends in the room. Sure this is going to be a great combo. So, Tony, bring it. However you want. All
1: right, cool. Um, I got today's call kind of wrong. You know, I was expecting that a short market um, after this tremendously negative reaction after the CPI data on September. Um, 13th, that was a hellaciously bad day for the S&P, where we carved a new high um, up around 41.75, and then after, um, you know, FOMC data came out, it, excuse me, after inflation came out worse than expected, we took a nosedive, and I think we're still completing that move. Um, you know, we saw a lot of violent selling, and we saw six sessions after that CPI print of, you know, massive tick extremes on the downside. We consolidated for a few days ahead of the FOMC. And in the last two hours here, we dumped into a new low. So, you know, as a tape reader, trend follower, technician, that's a bad close. It looks like we're heading for lower prices. Most obviously, um, you know, a retest of that double bottom first um, from July at 3740. And then we'll see there's the uh, June low below that at 3650. But the way the tape is trading, George, it looks like You know, we're going to be in for a lot more of the same. You know, if you wipe Jerome Powell and the FOMC off the board today, you saw a lot of what we've been seeing, right? A a dramatic new high in the dollar um, to the point that people are like, oh, there's no such thing as an Icarus print for the greenback. That's cool. Um, You know, a new high print in yields. Um, it seems like, you know, as much as the Fed wants to say that they, you know, sound like they've got it under control. I feel like the bat signal that I've been calling it the two year yield, you know, just keeps vaulting to a new high and putting pressure on them. I think that the bond market is very clearly reading the sort of political response to inflation as being wildly inflationary and yields won't back off. Um And right now, I feel like commodities are sideways to higher. You know, there's still the story where, um, you know, all the markets are pretty physically tight. You know, we've seen a big pullback after the um, economic, you know, data and COVID China lockdown story of the last couple of weeks slowing down the economy. Um, you know, kind of as expected stuff, all within the ebb and flow of you know these commodity markets. And right now, the BCOM is in a battle for its life on the 200-day moving average, trying to maintain it in an uptrend. And so, you know, you look at the fundamentals and you see tight markets and backwardated markets, and you know the continued attack on supply. And you say to yourself, how the flying flock is price going down? You know, and you look across the pond and you hear observations from Prince Abdulaziz, you know, from Saudi Arabia, who's noticing dramatic disconnect between the physical and um, paper markets. Right. He sees the paper markets selling off. Meanwhile, he's raising prices every month to Asian clients. They're paying the offer. Um, You know, the physical markets are extremely strong the refinery runs are strong. Refinery capacity is running at you know extremely high capacity. The refiners in are in a great position to make money. So I'm really not as concerned about that EMP sector. But when you look at the tape today, you know we made new lows for the year um, in social media, in communication services, which is an ETF XLC, um, and obviously in EEM with uh, King Dollar stomping around the tape. Emerging markets makes a new low. Um, we see a new high in general mills because they crushed earnings and guided higher i think you have got to be long food producers while a lot of them are catching them on fire around the country and you know commodities are just kind of offered right now if anything the only thing that i've seen that has given signs of a you know real attempt at reversing and it's not really that dramatic an attempt is gold which put in you know a new low for the move and then closed above yesterday's high Um, you know, and may retrace back up to 1700 or 17 and a quarter. And I'm really just spectating there. So my axe to grind is uh, figuring out whether oil is going to hold on this dip or if the paper markets are going to keep, you know, selling oil off, you know, taking the pressure off of the natural gas markets and, you know, kind of getting back in line. Um, And maybe the tape readers that said, you know, that noticed all the doom at the highs and the commodity markets are right. And we back off a little bit. Or if it's going to be that attack on supply slash, you know, ESG slash carbon neutral race, um, you know, that everybody seems to forget about. But the long term energy traders never forget about or the energy investors is that, you know, we are so far behind, as the CEO of uh, Saudi Aramco just said, so far behind on investment that at some point. Um, You know, it's kind of a question of when, not if. At some point, demand is going to well outstrip supply of fossil fuels, even as we try to pivot towards um, the electronic platform. So that's kind of my... you know, that's the thing that keeps me bullish in the long term on energy. I think it speaks to the fact that oil isn't backing off, you know, in heaps and leaps and bounds, you know, rather in dribs and drabs because open interest is falling, there's no spec length, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives us a lot, you know, us bulls a lot of chances to kind of hang in there. And uh, that's kind of my brain dump for now, George. Where do you want to start picking this apart?
0: So, Tony, you and I have been largely simpatico, um, for the mm-hmm. most part. And my hat's off to you, man. You totally nailed the energy trade. I mean, totally. <sighs> And and, and, I, and, I, and congrats for, uh, you are not one of these permabulls. You kind of got off the merry-go-round, I remember, a little while back. Yeah. And I know you're in a wait-and-see mood. Could you speak to the divergence between the stocks and the commodity? Uh, another good another good friend of the room, uh, he's in here now, Michael Belkin, made a great call back yes. in mid June to short oil, and it was brilliant. Crude's off 30, 30 bucks from that call. He got a lot of heat from people. Uh, but the funny thing is the stocks initially went down like, I don't know, 15 percent and then they recycled back up to a new high. And so you had this big divergence open up between the stocks and the, and the, um, and the commodity. Now, we know stocks live in the future. Commodities are you know, in the present. So mm-hmm. when
1: you think about how that gap could close, how do you approach that, that divergence? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great point, George. Well, you know, I traded accordingly. I think it's important to mention that. You know what I mean? The pullback in oil has taken me out of the commodity, and I'm talking about out of the commodity length that I bought at, um, you know, at at obnoxiously cheap levels in the 20s and 30s during the lockdown puke. And so uh, that trade is over for me. Um, Big drawdown from the highs, but a huge P&L from, you know, from inception. So it's fine. Um, and so I'm kind of trading out of the oil the commodity because, like you said, you know, there's a big back off there. Um, we're now under all the major moving averages. We've got the um, – excuse me. Let me just make sure I've got the right number. We've got the 50-day crossing down through the 200-day moving average in front-month crude oil. That's weighing on it technically, right? It looks pretty bad technically like it continue, can continue lower. Um, And then you've got this underlying dynamic that I think is massively important in the market, where, for example, crack spreads, right? They they saw their Icarus print at $60 and backed off to $30. And while that is a dramatic, you know, 50% pullback, you know, these refiners are used to navigating crack spreads between $5 and $15 for the most part. So their margins are puffed out. The stocks, if you look at the refineries like Marathon, Petroleum, Valero, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they're kind of comfortably in an uptrend and have been so all year, right? These are the sectors that are still positive on the year and holding ground. I think that they're likely attracting some money on dips when, you know, everybody's blowing their brains out of their technology stocks on new lows for the move and throwing in the towel on that stuff finally, you know, and they're saying, okay, where do I, where do I, you know, shift some of these chips around? You know, to me, it's a, a kind of a, you know, reasonable answer to say, okay, what's rallying on the year and why? And if my story agrees with that, then I want to put some flow into the ones that are up on the year as long as they're technically intact. And if you look across the energy slash natural resources, you know, and I'm talking about XOP, XLE, I'm talking about XME, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the pullbacks there are largely pullbacks within an uptrend. You know, XME is trading like crap now, it's fair to say. Um, but, you know, the fossil fuel sector are largely pullbacks within a strong uptrend. And the stocks are hanging in there because they're set up for success still. Right. Their margins are wider. Their biggest risk right now is um, the political backdrop. Right. As we know, they're, they're likely going to tax um, companies in Europe to pay for, um, you know, inflation, et cetera, et cetera, which is bizarrely inflationary and Counterintuitive to me. We'll see if that gets there in the United States. I don't think it's politically palatable, but the stocks are set up on the year, technically and fundamentally, better than the commodities from time to time. So from time to time, they outperform. I hope that answers your question. Very. I mean, listen, as Yogi, uh, our favorite philosopher uh, Yogi
0: Bear would say, you know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been very conflicted on energy. Um, uh, I was with Michael in mid-June. We made the call uh, and took a lot of uh, hits from people. Michael took a lot of hits as well, but he proved to be right on that call. Uh, we'll talk about the bond call later. It hasn't quite worked out. But um, the energy call, um, you know, you certainly haven't missed anything. Um, if, you own the, if you own the commodity, you, you, you avoided some nice losses if you stepped aside. Honestly, I don't know. Um, and I know it's a for me, it's a multiple time frame uh, question. I agree with you about the longer term. It's not the issue. Mm-hmm. But as our, as our mutual friend, Michael Gaia, who's just two over to your right in the upper corner, uh, path, uh, as he would say, uh, path often matters more than uh, prediction. And so my fear has been, you know, when Michael made the call, I think crude was like 115, 120, you know, and it was just, ah, can't happen. But you know how yeah, it is, Tony. You and I could say, ah, oh, we're bullish for the long term. Trust me. There comes a point where, on the downside, you know this, and I know this. Mm-hmm. You're sufficiently wrong. You just stock yourself out. So, what would it take for you to, you know, the, the Mike Tyson uh, line? You know, everyone has a plan until like, they get punched in the face. Okay. So, you're you're enduring long-term bullishness on the stocks, which I share. What mm-hmm. would be your uncle level, or what would you have to see for you to give up the ghost and say, you know what, forget about the long term. The long run, we're all dead. I'm out of here. I mean, I mean, or put another, put it. Now. That's too hard a question to answer. Would you be, if you had a new client coming today to you, forget about it, they think you're a smart guy, you get no credit for being right for a year and a half on energy, um, you're not penalized for overstaying, you're welcome. Would you be telling, and he said, I have 100 units to put to work, I want to buy energy, would you tell him to be all in on energy now, or just 10%? You tell him to wait and watch? How would you be, with new money now, what would you be doing with energy stocks?
1: Yeah, new money, you know, put it this way, George, I, I can stick to my original thesis when coming up with a tactical tra- trading plan for that, right? My new my new money thesis for energy is we have plenty of time to scale into this stuff, especially for, well, not even especially, let's call it for several reasons, right? Number one, it's a longer term trade, so there's no rush to get into it today, tonight, right? T- you know, tomorrow, whatever. Number three, um, well, sort of on the way there is, with the stocks i feel like they are going to eventually you know with the way the s&p is trading right my thesis has been higher yields due to commodity inflation weighing on the s&p brushing technology first and the most interest rate sensitive stocks the worst probably natural resources the least and sort of that's my idea you know so i can hang in there with these energy stocks seeing as they continue to really kind of outperform The But if they broke their levels and really broke trend, it would be no problem for me to sell out of those positions, right? Like right now, I've got kind of a trailing trailing stop in XOP at around 105 below that July low that I just endured where I was hiding under my desk, sucking my thumb for a couple hours a day um, you know, below the recent 65 low and XLE, you know, you break all the trend lines down there and these aren't far away, but you know, I'm a tactical trader, George. So when, when things like that happen, I get shaken out and I sit here with eyes wide open saying, you know, do I want to get back in on this trend or is my mind changing? So right. the price, you know, the prices where I get out are reasonably close to the market. I, right. I have and, and, stuff, and, but-
0: and that's a great point too. I think it's important everyone understands that because everyone's got their own style, uh, their own, um, you know, the the, the the way they approach markets, you know, the buy and hold crowd. Um, you know, your short-term tactical stuff not of interest. But there are a lot of hot traders, and they want to trade. You know, weekly, monthly, and you know, if you if you if you if you uh, access to prices at a, is at a bad local level, you can wind up looking pretty stupid pretty quickly. Tony, let me just shift gears a little bit. Um, and by the way, for those of you that don't know, Tony, um, TG Macro, um, the Navigator. Excellent publication. Strongly urge you to reach out to Tony. He's must follow. And what I like about Tony, unlike some people, I don't know who that might be, like yours truly, was dogmatic, Tony just you know it's trade what you see, not what you think. You know, Tony, guys like me, it's like we have a view, it doesn't work, and then, and then it's like, and then it's like, schmuck, turn the page upside down. Yeah, now it looks better. See, Tony. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> but 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 Tony, seriously. Yeah. But you know, I read your stuff. I can't get enough of it. I notice yes. though your sheets right now. Am I right or wrong on this? You've got less on your sheets now yeah. than I've seen you in the past. And good traders, like when you don't know, you just kind of, you know, pull in the sails a little bit. Am I reading this correctly? Like I, I you have fewer positions now than you've had over the last
1: year, or am I, am I yeah. like,
0: what, 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 what what's behind that?
1: Yeah. You got that right, George. I think when you went on your bike ride, when you went on your little tricycle ride to Europe there, I probably had sixteen positions or so on the view matrix and um, I wound up. You know, cutting all of that risk on the way down in energy and, you know, a lot of the risk on stuff that I was, you know, trading just because the market was giving me the chance to, you know, trade the rebound, to trade the bounce. You know, the time came to get out of all that stuff. I got very curious as to how the market was going to react to you know, the FOMC, the politics, the propaganda, the, you know, the real crisis that is still brewing in Europe and not over, even though people think that the price of natural gas backed off 25% means that the European crisis is done and dusted and put away in the drawer. Um, That is definitely not the case. So, um, what was my point, George? Um, we, 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 we were talking about how good traders, and I'm accusing you of crediting you of being a good trader. When
0: you don't know, you just shrink your balance. You oh, yeah. yeah so That's what was, you've yeah, done.
1: Yes, yeah, so that was the point. So I got down to literally where I've got my three you know sort of best performing tactical longs still staying alive. I've got those on. I was um, fortunate enough, knock on wood, to put a couple of shorts out into the bounce to balance my book quite a bit or at least give the appearance that my book is you know, very much neutral and balanced. And I kind of made a pact on myself that I really want to do a good job as a journalist covering what I see um, to be the most used to my clients and to other people. So I'm fine p- paring down risk right now, um, even though I got pancaked in the S&P today. Um, But largely paring down risk and really trying to observe and sit here with eyes wide open. I got plenty of dry powder should a really good opportunity pop up. And I like to have it sitting there just just lying around for when something good is going to fall in my lap. You know what I mean, George?
0: hundred percent.
1: I mean, is is,
0: I forget who coined the phrase, but, you know, your beliefs and and there's your portfolio. You don't always have to be playing hard all the time. I know I've, yeah. done it, I've done it too many times in my career, and I've been, I've been far worse for doing that. Sometimes you just, when you don't know, just don't play. Get on your bike and go, go for yeah. a ride. Seriously. I yeah, totally. so, I said, so Tony, a couple other things. I don't want to go open this up. we got some really sharp guys here in the room. Yeah. But let's get into a free-for-all. So yeah. you, I look the same things you look at. I mean, dollar breaking, I tweeted out this morning, first thing. Dollar breaking out to a new local high. We had yields to a new high. They reversed, but doesn't matter. Just give it a few days. It's going to go back up again. But anyway, you know, yields and the dollar – to the moon. Um, the advanced decline line is horrible. Breath is awful. Um, I'm worried about, I mean, that, that, that's trade what you see, not what you, not, not, not what you think. If I then editorialize and start talking about, oh, the big structure looks terrible. We haven't seen redemptions yet. People are too fully invested. Seasonality's bad. You know, God knows uh, what's going on with the oil price. Bad joke coming up. Trigger warning. Uh, what's, yeah. what's about to happen in Europe, I think me, uh, may redefine uh, the term Cold War. Um, I mean, there's just so many ways to lose here. Yeah. To me, the structural overlook's horrible, all right? That comes as no surprise to you, because as long as we've been talking, I've been pretty negative. Right. Um, so if we were just spitballing, and I, and I took the bear case, um, what, and you know, we're having a debate, right? And you got to take the bull case. What would the bull case sound like? I mean, pretend, just make believe. like, Or, or maybe you do believe it. Like,
1: what, what, would you, what would you do if you had to defend the bull case? What would the bull case sound like? Man, oh, man. I would first thing I would say is turn your screen off and don't look at the chart. Okay? <laughs> you, you're not allowed to look at the chart because the price action has been literally so confirming um, that that last rally that we was, was just saw was just nothing but a retracement rally and that we're about to knife lower. So anyway, what's the bull case? All
0: right. To, it, yeah, sorry. If you
1: don't, well,
0: if you, if no, you don't no. want to answer that, I can ask you an easier question.
1: No 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 I want to come up with it you know you have Go to on. figure out what it is you know it's hard to come up with a bull case other than Um, You know, maybe a pivot to hard assets is going to be something that, you know, the commodity, uh, the stock market can muster. You know, we haven't broken, broadly speaking, you know, the broadest uptrend. And, you know, maybe you can hang your hat on that and buy a a dip. But, man, it's hard to make a case for, you know, looking for performance in terms of, you know, trading or investing in the S&P to the upside. Really hard for me for the rest of the year and maybe even longer than that, George.
0: All right, my, my my last question. Then we're going to go to Mark Newman, and then we're going to go to Michael Gaad. So Newman on deck, Guyad in the hole. So Tony, um, we, 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 put, you can do anything. You can be long, short, spread trade, whatever you want. I mean, obviously, you don't have a tremendous amount of conviction. If you did, your yeah. sheets would, would would be would be uh, bigger. Yeah. Do you have any? What are your high, do you have any uh, highest conviction, uh, super high conviction traders? let me put it another way: regardless of your view. Well, I always like question. I always ask myself, I like to ask others, is what's your conviction level? You know, one to ten, mm. ten being the highest, right? So, you know, mm. when your conviction is at ten level. Yeah, you're, you're, winning, you're willing to get in there, the count's 3-0, you know, and oh, the pitcher's got to kind of come in with it, and you're willing to dig in and right. swing for the fences, all right? Other times, the guy's throwing heat, and it's like, what the hell, forget it. I'll be lucky if I get my bat on the ball. So, like, yeah. right now, like, do you have any really strong, what's your strongest conviction? Do you have any strong conviction? Or it's perfectly good to say, you know what, I just don't know, it's
1: too confusing right now. Yeah, you know, uh, George, the one thing, you know, when I look at my, um, when I look at my, you matrix. I, I can say that like two positions jump out at me with that that give me a lot of conviction to stay in them no matter what. What's funny is that one's long and one's short, right? I don't want to go into the marathon petroleum refiner trade because that trade is working, has been working. That's like kind of all systems go. Leave that where it is. When I look at the short side, I look at the home builders and I'm like, you know, eight ways through Sunday, I can't figure out how the stocks are going to survive the year. You know what I mean? Like this is a sector that is you sort of got it right where you want it. Rates are rising. It's working against the consumer. It's working against, you know, the mortgage markets. Um, XHB has been behaving perfectly as a, you know, complete reversal of its rally. It just saw its finest days after the lockdown when everybody was, you know, moving to a new city, redesigning their workspace, this and that. And so my kind of thesis is that if XHB gets back below the 2020 lows, which were kind of, you know, we bounced off of in June, you know, bounced off of to the 200 day moving average where I tactically put on the short. And I'm pretty confident that as yields prove me right, that they're going higher, that XHB is dead, right? It's off 34% on the year. It's in bear market territory. It's do- checking every technical box, that you need if you want to tune into the earnings of Pulte Homes and Lennar they're all getting crushed by number 1 inflationary commodity costs and number 2 you know um, clients walking out the door because they couldn't get a hold of the mortgage rate they were looking for so that's kind of the theme across the nail banger sector and then retail side of xhb you know the consumers is going to have you know difficulty navigating a higher yield and higher inflation market as well so I feel like that takes, you know, uh, discretionary spending out of their pocket. So I'm sure at home builders and below the 2020 highs of like 50, which is the same as this year's low, I would double my bet and look for that thing to really come apart. I'm just bearish as hell that sector right now. Awesome.
0: All right. time. It's time. So we got Newman stepping up to the plate and guides on deck. Hey, Mark, what's up, man? Mark hey, hey. hey, George. Hey, everybody. How's it going? A couple things real quick i'll just hit on three quick
2: points one is a fed fed related so i was chatting with a big guy the other night and we were talking about what's going on in japan right and the and the japanese the boj owns the japanese market like that's pretty clear the ecb is trying to contain the ecb uh, the eu whether they can or not and with the fed someone had riffed that the fed was the market and we were discussing how the Fed, the, the the U.S. market is just too big, and the dollar is just too big for the Fed really to control the market, like Japan and the BOJ. So that's one clear distinction uh, between the three central banks of, of of importance. The second point I wanted to make was about oil. It feels to me like there's a political favors quid pro quo keeping oil low before the mm. midterms, and I think into into October or maybe you know sooner after that that in the elections are cleared up. I think oil maybe resumes. That's a maybe. I don't know. The biggest point I want to make is this, and it's about positioning. And uh, y'all maybe know, don't know, I don't know. I'm working on this ESG orphans, and I and it's really a under-owned sector. And the reason why I bring it up is because I did a lot of work recently. The Spiders top five holdings, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Google, 21% weighting. The QQQ, same five, <clears throat> 42%. Now, I looked at ESGU and ESGV, BlackRock's flagship ESG fund, and Vanguard's. Do you want to guess what those top five holdings are? They're the exact same at about 21 22%. So last Tuesday, a week ago, right, we had the sp- Qs down about five and a half. We had the Spoo's down about four and a half. And we had those two ESG funds down about four and a half. So what happens is this is massively overowned by everybody. And then last week, or no, the other day, excuse me, Citigroup said we need to overweight info tech, because the 18% to 36% weighting in the S&P wasn't enough over the last decade. And then you have the quants, you know, they're all long to the gills. And today, Mr. Uh, Powell confirmed that rates are not going down anytime soon. So now everybody in their market exposure, do you want small, medium, or law, or or large tech exposure? And now we're heading into. Q uh, year end, fiscal year end for mutual funds into October. And the tax loss selling season is going to be here. So I would say the biggest risk to this market by a long shot is this big tech space. The Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon short interest is under 1% in all of them. So mm-hmm. I believe that's why Apple at 7% of the spoos at 25 times forward. Is there anyone not long Apple out there other than me? I don't know. But the problem we have here is that everyone is rooting for that big tech space newman, and i think that is newman, where the big risk
0: is going to be in the fourth quarter newman as us as those political commercials will say my name is george noble and i approve of this message <laughs> more more power to you brother so, new, new, newman newman you're spot on spot on so just stay there because this is going to get to be fun all right so we're going to do followed by michael howell followed by tom thornton mr guy how are you my friend I mean, not too bad
3: considering finally I got the right kind of action um, in Treasuries. So, first of all, uh, Tony, your XHB home builders is my LBS1, which is lumber. And hmm. it's not a coincidence that when you see home builders weak, lumber tends to be weak because, as I keep saying, as I just presented at the local CFA chapter here in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, lumber is about housing. We all see it, we live in it, right? So, and, and lumber has been weak pretty much the entire year, just like utilities have been strong the entire year. I, I've talked about this point before. Uh, the frustration in my world from a risk-on, risk-off perspective is that the signals that I follow in the funds that I run have been risk-off. Utilities have been strong. That's defense. Lumber's been weak. That's defense. Now, I shared in the nest a bit earlier this idea, which I keep saying, that if you're entering a high, highly volatile period for equities, the question everybody has to then think through is, well, how do you play higher volatility for equities? Risk-off is ultimately about conditions that favor higher volatility. How do you play higher volatility in equities? Historically, there's only three real risk-off plays that benefit from stock market volatility. Not my opinion. You can go to the data and look at this. When you're in high volatility regimes for stocks, the three best ways to play that volatility are long-duration treasuries, followed by gold, followed by the dollar. Historically, of those three, long-duration treasuries, not an opinion, are the best way to play risk-off, except this year, where it's been utter hell, the worst of the three. The drawdown in long-duration treasuries is larger than the drawdown in equities. The interaction of the drawdown in treasuries to equities in the drawdown is something we've never seen before in history. Now, let's play it out. Let's say we're resuming a risk-off period where this time around, the concern ends up not being about inflation but about default risk right because i keep going back to why are treasuries the best risk off play because it's about default risk off credit spreads widen money flows into the quote-unquote safety of government debt because the reality is the government owns our assets through taxation not us right so that's why you see that movement in the long end i think today i think really actually last tuesday is when the regime started shifting Uh, today is a good example of the point that this narrative that uh, the Fed uh, hiking rates is not good for long bonds, today proves that that's not the case. Long duration treasuries were the only thing, one of the few things that were actually made money as yields fell on the long end. I keep making this point. The Fed does not control the long end of the curve. So everyone, I think, should ask themselves very simply uh, this question. If you go with me, based on history, based on the data, based on the quant work, that your three risk off plays are long duration treasuries, gold and the dollar which of those looks the most undervalued it's not the dollar it's not really gold so if finally the regime is shifting if now we get into a classic risk off moment okay fine you can have the short end rates rise to the point of of uh, others here saying that rates will keep rising but it's always a question of which rates the way, the rates that probably are rising will be or that were likely to rise will be short rates because the fed controls that junk rates which means credit spread widening. And if that's the case, the rates that will be falling would be the long side of the duration um, angle. I desperately need that. I mean, the shit that I've gone through this year, I've talked about this ad nauseum. I have three funds that are rules-based. They all suck this year, unfortunately, because they all use treasuries as the risk off play and high volatility based on historical relationships, even in the 70s. If this anomaly is over, which I hope to God it is, this sequence interaction of stocks to treasuries, then that becomes really interesting because it would suggest you're entering a classic risk-off period with stocks already quite a bit off the highs which means conceivably you could have some real real pain to come i don't know right it's not it's not impossible but um it, it seems plausible to me that this could be the first step to some degree of normalization in intermarket relationships as high inflation still remains with
0: us thanks michael much appreciated um okay so now we got, so Michael followed by Michael. So, oh, he's Michael Cantron, so we got the triple play here. Mr. Howell from London. Um, wow, you're up late, my friend. Great to hear you, Michael. And then Tom Thornton on deck. Uh, Michael, what's going on? I haven't spoken for a bit. Uh, you, my hat's off to you. You totally nailed this. You've got us into a fine mess, my friend. And um, you're, you've become quite a uh, Twitter celebrity. I know you've got quite a big following going on now, and people always love to hear your views. So, Mr. Howe, you want to give us a little mu- mu- night music from London? What, what's going on, my friend?
4: Great. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm going to say something about the, the fixed income markets because uh, I agree with Michael Guy that uh, it's kind of the elephant in the room here. But I want to focus on something which is a little bit wonkish, but it's still very important. And that is that if you look at the U.S. Treasury market, the term premier on the 10-year bond is at an all-time low, Okay on our estimates, but actually also pretty similar figures from the numbers that the New York Fed put out. That number is screaming at us. That's what the Fed ought to be looking at and asking the question, why is this number printing so low and so negative? It's a big, big warning sign. And let me just give a heads up as to what it means. Yeah, Mike, let me interrupt for one second.
0: Maybe for the benefit of those in the room, I think we've got a huge room here. You could just give idiots' guide to
4: what term premium means perhaps. Yeah, okay. The 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 bond can be split into two components. One of those is uh, the expectation of policy rates, okay? What the Fed is going to raise the Fed funds rate to. The other component is basically a premium or a discount, which takes into account interest rate risk if you're holding duration. So it tends to be moved by supply and demand factors rather than rate expectations. So Think of it as an extra bit on top of expectations of rates and it can go it can trade at a premium or a discount but it has huge information in it it's one of the most valuable pieces of information in the entire financial market that is trading at an all-time low and what it's telling us is one of three things okay one is that the fixed income markets are discounting a huge recession well that may be right but the equity markets not the second thing it could be telling us is is there's a structural shortage of collateral in the system? Well, we kind of suspect that after years of austerity policies and Fed QE, there must be some shortages. Or the third reason is that there's this basically a huge liquidity squeeze. Well, we know that. Our data tells us that. It tells us that if you look at global liquidity on our index, which is a 0-100 range, we're down at 17. It's really at a low figure. Now, the corollary of this is if you use that term premia, to extrapolate U.S. earnings, in other words, S- S&P earnings for 23, it's a minus 20 print. An analyst is still out there at plus eight. There's a huge gap to fill. The bond markets are on a very, very different page. And what's more, the term premier is telling us that there's a lot of shit out there that's going to hit the fan.
3: Hey, hey, Mike, can I ask you a quick question? Because I have this, this, it's not really a conspiracy theory, but I have this belief that the Fed probably desperately wants to see real risk-off behavior take place, meaning money flow into treasuries, so that they can sell into that demand. In other words, historically, when you have higher volatility and equities, long-duration yields fall. There's a demand for that flight to safety in treasuries. Again, that's the risk-off trade historically. Uh, they want to roll off the balance sheet. They want to sell treasuries. They can't do that if yields keep rising without causing an outright depression. So they've got to, to some extent, sell into new demand, which means they probably need to see stocks go down and then that flight to safety behavior come in and replace them.
4: Yeah, I think that makes complete sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a there's a trillion of new treasuries to sell and the Federal Reserve is probably uh, aiming at half a trillion a year. So there's a there's a lot of supply coming out. That's for sure. Uh, But, you know, that's uh, that's another factor in a recession. The demand for treasury will go up, big time, and I don't know many funds that are overweight treasuries right now.
0: So, <laughs> so, 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 my, so Michael Howe, just continue with that. So, um, you know, and again, Michael Howe must follow a cross-border capital. Uh, Michael, you've been, you've been, and I'll say it again, and 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 you're not, you're not paying me to say this or otherwise. You alone, I'm going to embarrass you. I remember visiting you October last year in London. Uh, almost a year ago, and you were already banging the drum then. And as I've tweeted at many times, not only were you right, but you were right for the right reasons. You called this liquidity thing. And so, um, you know, no pressure here. It's hard to kind of outdo what you've done. You've been on a real roll here last year. But where are we in this continuum? You think, I mean, I know you've been tweeting out and asking a leading question here. You've been you've been positing that, you know, 3,000 S&P is in our, uh, is 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 in our future perhaps but give us a framework for, how, for you know, where do you think the market could go to and how do you get there?
4: Well, I think the, the answer is, I mean, there's a, there's a chart we put out on our Twitter feed pretty much every week, which is mapping uh, Federal Reserve liquidity injections into money markets alongside the SPX. And it's tracking you know, remarkably closely. If the Federal Reserve is believed in what they want to do, to take another trillion or trillion and a half out of the balance sheet, you're talking about um, uh, an SPX trading around 3,000, possibly 3,200, but somewhere in that range. So there's a, there's a big drop yet. If they make an error, which is entirely possible, and the error could be that they allow uh, reverse repos to jump, uh, and that's a concern internally in the Fed as well, uh, you could be seeing uh, you know, way south of 3,000 on, on the S&P. So the, the outlook's not great. Now <laughs> – Probably the U.S. market looks one of the better ones worldwide. Uh, I can't believe why anyone wants to buy the eurozone markets at the moment. Um, uh, you know the, these things look even worse. Uh, but basically, you know we're we're on the on the Fed page right now, and the uh, and the market in the U.S. does not look good for all these reasons. But the bond markets are there. You know, telling, screaming at us that there's a big problem there. And I would just urge everyone, including. Uh, people at the Fed to look at what the term premium are telling us. This is, these are abnormal prints, uh, all-time lows, 60-year lows in term premium. Uh, and that's telling us that there's huge excess demand being built up in the Treasury market. So, my, Michael, just Michael uh, Howe, uh,
0: just put, just listening to you, uh, uh, crosses my mind. It seems that if one wanted sort of a, uh, a high-conviction uh, trade um, high sharp ratio sounds like a bunch of words in your mouth. This is the wrong trade, and you tell me what is the right trade sounds like you'd be, you'd be very. Um, and, and, guy, don't speak up. You, you didn't ask me to ask this question, but I'm I'm going to pour gas there on your fire. Being long of bonds versus short of equities, uh, Michael. Howell, it sounds like you would very much like that trade, correct?
4: Yeah, I think I, I would like that trade. Uh, I think I would uh, I would tend to be nearer the front end of the curve right now. And the reason for that is not because, uh, you know, bonds, uh, bonds would probably try and rally uh, in a recession. The trouble is there's a huge amount of supply out there and you're not getting a lot of demand coming in from foreigners. Uh, A lot of that has been already is already been uh, satisfied. And we know the Chinese are not buying anymore so that's been a major element in the last few years uh therefore i would tend to say you know you want to be nearer the front end probably mid-duration i'm not so convinced that the long end will rally a lot it it should do but i'm i'm not convinced by that and michael
0: one 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 other question um because you've got a very sort of, you know, global perspective most of us in the room are more uh insular than you are we're you know americans of course um you mentioned the Euro um, and what's going on there. Uh, and then there's, of course, Japan. So maybe just a word, just flesh, to tease out a little bit further, your view on sort of the, the, the Euro, the European economy, the yen and the Japanese economy. Because again, you know, currencies is all a relative thing. And so, you know, we, I remember the last time we spoke, we were, you, were, you were rattling on about the Japanese. and the end, you know, it, it, it's continuing to grind lower or, or higher, you know. Um, so what, what are your thoughts about, where we are. You, you mentioned, as I recall, I thought you said the, the euro might go to 85, possibly, whatever. But what are sort of, your updated views on, on on the eurozone, European economy, currency, and, and same thing for Japan?
4: Okay, well, on, on the euro, I still hold to the view that the euro is, uh, is vulnerable to uh, a major sell-off, uh, and I, I still hold to that. The reason being is that uh, the anti-fragmentation policy of the ECB, which is basically trying to stop yield spreads across the Uh, EU countries from blowing out vis-a-vis the German Bund, uh, that policy requires more liquidity. Uh, They've already basically stepped up to the plate. Uh, One of the things that they slipped into uh, the monetary policy announcement last week when they hiked rates by 75 basis points is that they allowed banks uh, to basically hold on to their special loans that they're taken out from the ECB uh, during the COVID crisis. So in other words, what it means is the ECB balance sheet is not going to be run off anything like as fast as first slated. Uh, it's going to be bloated for some time. And that, I think, puts a lot of downward pressure on the euro, particularly if the Fed is uh, is squeezing the balance sheet in the US. So that's, that's number one. Uh, I mean, from a European stock point of view, that maybe is a little bit of a palliative in the sense that, uh, you know, you've got a, a weaker currency to help Uh, In terms of Japan, I think we're very close to the stage where the BOJ actually starts to tighten monetary policy. You can't see a currency collapse at this rate uh, and just be nonchalant towards it. I think there's been I mean, although this sounds like a conspiracy theory, I probably aired this before, George, on this on uh, on your uh, Twitter spaces, is that in the period from early March to early May, the yen fell at an annualized rate of 82 percent. Uh, in all my years in financial markets, I've never seen markets do that to a currency. Uh, only governments do that. There right. must be something behind it. I think the yen was a stalking horse. I think it was a stalking horse to basically hit the Chinese. I think the dollar has been weaponized. And what the, uh, what the U.S. Treasury was trying to do was basically to push the uh, yuan through seven, uh, which they probably succeeded in doing. Uh, the Chinese have been trying to hold that back. They've been tightening monetary policy through much of the last nine months. Uh, that's why the, one of the reasons the Chinese economy is so, is so weak. There's no sign that they're changing that now, but I would suspect since they've allowed, uh, the Yuan to devalue, they have finally sort of thrown in the towel. I would suspect that we're probably weeks or months away from a major easing in China because they've got to do that. And it may coincide with, uh, with what's going on in the October 20th party Congress when Xi Jinping gets reelected. That would be, uh, bullish for commodity markets. Right. Okay. So Hey George, um, can I
2: add one thing on Japan?
4: Yeah, Yeah, just quickly, quickly.
2: One thing on Japan. So October October first, they're gonna start passing much more costs on to the consumer. And basically the CPI in Japan, which is down around two six last reading, is probably gonna double in the next month, month and a half. And you got Kuroda still buying JGBs. Last night a trillion yen. So I think that the QE FUBAR that is Japan is coming to a coming to a head quickly. I'll
0: add. That's it. Wow. All right. So let's just reset here for one second. Um, so I think Michael Guyad has a quick follow up for Michael Hal. Then, Michael Guyad, after your question, we're going to Tom Thornton and then Doomberg. Michael Guyad, do you have a follow up for Michael Howe? Yeah, real quick, because on, on that Euro
3: um, further sell off, and I, I've, I've been bringing this idea up quite a bit the last several months, and I'm increasingly. Of the mindset that this is likely to happen, which is there seems to be a looming sovereign debt uh, default crisis that's coming, which you can argue the Fed maybe wants. I always go back to that point that inflation is a process. Deflation is an event. And one way to get liquidity out of the system is if you have some kind of foreign entity or Asian Asian equivalent uh, happen. Um, Michael, you you, you brought up that point that you haven't seen foreign demand for treasuries. Um, What's the likelihood that that changes, uh, if the dollar keeps on rising like this.
4: Well, I, when I said I haven't seen foreign demand for treasuries, what I was trying to say was that, uh, there hasn't been a lot of Chinese demand recently, uh, Fair, right. but there has been foreign demand that that's been going in. Um, and a lot of that has been basically the, the U S dollar U S treasury market is clearly a safe asset for a lot of foreigners. That's for sure. Much, much better than their domestic instruments. Um, so I, you know, I think that, uh, the, you know, that the, the ultimate problem uh, with the eurozone is there's no safe asset. Uh, the only safe asset in the eurozone is basically the German Bund. That's, not a, that's uh, you know, not a euro security. It's a German security. And that's basically why the whole thing is flawed.
0: Awesome. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We now turn to our uh, good friend, Mr. Thornton, uh, and then to be followed by Doomberg. And after Doomberg, we've got Jeff Garbaz. Tommy, good to see you. What's up, my friend?
5: Hey, George. Uh, welcome back from Italy. I, I wish I could have joined you uh, on your uh, bike uh, trip. That sounded great. I, uh, I I stayed here uh, watching the markets uh, do their thing, and it's been uh, quite the uh, September so far, quite the year, actually. Uh, so, you know, I, the bond market, I, I get a lot of questions of, you know, when do you buy, you know, when do you buy the two-year, when – Honestly, it, it just there's been very few signals that I, on my part that I could say that it, it's 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 there. Uh, market sentiment on bonds is really really low. Um, on the DSI daily sentiment index data that we we put charts on, uh, it's been at like ten percent. I today's probably a little lower, um, maybe not that much. But I'm more of a equity guy and. I will tell you that there's a couple things that are concerning to me. Uh, First of all, I'll I'll say that uh, I have been uh, scaling out of shorts uh, on this down down move. Uh, I've been in the belief that we would go lower. Uh, I'm becoming more at the belief that uh, we will break the uh, June lows. We're only uh, we're less than four percent with the S and P. Uh, from the June lows and about four and a half percent for the Nasdaq, I mean, that could happen really, really fast. Uh, partly because I think there's a a couple of issues. One, uh, market sentiment on the S and P is at eight percent bulls. Now, market sentiment is not it's a condition; it's not a trigger. Uh, but when I start to see things get under ten percent, uh, we've we've seen I think about four times this year where we hit 10% and we saw bounces. Uh, in June, we hit 7% and we bounced. Uh, but here's my problem. Uh, I follow DeMarc indicators and the it's they've been absolutely spot on this year, really, really solid. Uh, the DeMarc indicators have DeMarc sequentials, which is the, those are the, if you look at my charts online, they're the red numbers that go to 13. And just about every index and a ton of various stocks, including all the mega caps, have that day on day seven of 13 or day nine. Even in some of the European indices, the euro Stock 600, the euro stocks 50, uh, those are on day nine of 13. So the problem I have is market sentiment is very, very low. And you can, when you chart it, you can see where things. Tend to bottom out, and when you start to th- see things, but those sequential thirteens need to trigger, uh, as far as a buy signal for me to where I want to be buying a bounce. So I will be. I'm scaling out of shorts. Uh, I took off some spies and cues today. I'm um, the largest cash position um, ever for the trade ideas sheet. Uh, but here's the other part. Uh, the Fed's not going to stop. They just made that very clear. They have a uh, meeting the week before their next meeting's the week before the election, and God knows uh, there's going to be one party that's going to be very upset with the Fed. Um, <laughs> which that's you know I'm not getting into politics here. Uh, retail has not capitulated, and the Bank of America fund manager survey stuff, and oh, actually another flows have continued to show retail is buying the dips. And a lot of that will be will be like 401k type money that that goes in, but retail has not capitulated, and I think that's a big deal. Uh, you've also had uh, earnings blow ups. I think FedEx was just absolutely devastating. and one of the ones that you don't want to see if you're a macro person, because FedEx has so many different tentacles in so many different places from consumer demand to business. Uh, It's just, it was devastating. And I think that we're at risk now for more earning surprises. And as you see, the market doesn't really take too well to those uh, earning surprises. So we're in a really tricky period right now. And I put out a note the other day and I, I, I basically called it chart doom and I don't like to be, you know, hysterical about, you know, know, the, the, like some people that, you know, the end of the world's coming, but I do have a um, price target on the S and P is based off of a, a, one of the DeMarc uh, variant of a Fibonacci retracement S and P 2962. And that's uh, a 0.618 retracement. Off the highs. Now the problem I have, and, and some people say, oh, that's just that's crazy. Well, back in um, other periods, let's say in 2020, uh, if I had said that 2100 would be uh, the target, you probably wouldn't have thought that could ever come true. And we were within within a hundred points on the S and P. In 2008, we not only achieved that but we went much lower. That was at uh, 959 and we went to 666, right? So we went even further. In the tech bubble, it was at 943 after being over 1500 on the S&P. And we went even lower to 763. So this is not based off of like some pie in the sky type of theory, but it's something that's happened in the past. So my view is that this could be rather slippery in into Q3 earnings which this and I've talked about it with you George this reminds me of Q3 in 2000 when a lot of the companies had to give up and you know they were at the confessional telling everybody how crappy their numbers were going to be and a lot of those companies were big tech companies Apple went down 50% in the in Q3 Q4 and I mean, it's, a, it's a different company obviously now, but I think people have to understand that, um, there are a lot of people trapped long in a lot of stocks. And if this thing breaks, don't be surprised if it, if it really breaks hard and I'm not going to use the, 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 word well said it could crash. Um, but I'm not positioned for a crash. I don't like to position for a crash. I don't recommend people go out and buy out of the money puts or do something silly with a lot of their money. Cause this is the time where you need to just preserve capital and get through this and look for, uh, places where we get bounces and, you know, rinse, repeat, um, and keep doing it. hundred percent, Tommy really well said, and yes, you know,
0: shorting is for professionals, but at a minimum, uh, preserving capital, like you said, um, holding cash. So you have, so you're not getting margin called the market tanks. So you've got a balance sheet, sheet to be able to redeploy capital um, when the market finally gets washed out. I mean, I just see so many ways to lose, and a very high probability that we're going to lose, and so many, and so few ways to win, and a low probability that we're going to win. Talk about the market going up or down. But to me, look, there's no guarantees in life. The risk reward setup to me just looks horrendous. Uh, and so, you know, let's I'll put it another way. Put it another way. I have no sympathy for anybody who loses money being long in this market. You don't want to be short, fine. But being long, you got to be out of your mind. Thanks for that, Tommy. All, All right, right let's, let's keep moving here. Um, we're going to do Doomburg, and then we've got uh, Jeff Garbaz mm-hmm. on deck and KFAB in the hole. And after KFAB, we've got
6: Amy. So, Doomberg, good to see you. What's up, my friend? George, how are you? Really um, amazing space, and a real honor to be part of it. Thank you for uh, inviting me up to speak. I have um, three points to make to add to the discussion, uh, and I agree with with a lot of it um, since I've uh, I've been listening here. Um, uh, and and you caught us at a good time. We have our monthly um, webinar for our pro tier tomorrow, so we spent the last two or three days with our heads down um, uh, getting ready for a presentation we're giving um, that that gives an overview of the, of the global energy uh, markets and and what's going on in that space. So the first. Big aha from that research and putting together that talk is um, we have this uh, mechanism internally to normalize the primary energy prices you see on your Bloomberg screen so that you can directly compare coal to oil to gas to pick your favorite primary energy source. Uh, And the way we do that is we correct for currency, we correct for units of trade, and we correct for um, inherent energy embedded in fuels So, for example, there's 24 million BTUs uh, in a ton of coal. Um, and there's 5.8 million BTUs in a barrel of oil. And so when you put it all on the same page and you just read across the different primary inputs, there's a really fascinating situation in the market today that we think is telling us a very important signal, and that is this. Um, Coal on a dollars-per-million BTU basis is more expensive than oil today, and that's almost unprecedented. Wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. Mic drop, mic drop. I don't think we heard I don't think I heard you correctly, Dunberg. So you're gonna have to say it again. i pulling pulling Yeah. Could you so, say it again slowly, please?
6: Yes. So if you normalize for how much energy is in a ton of coal versus how much energy is in a barrel of oil, and you plot them all on the same chart in dollars per million BTU, the price of Newcastle coal is higher than the price of WTI oil which is um, the second most remarkable thing we find when we look across the energy landscape today. Um, so what does that mean? What could that mean? Um, to us that means um, that we're entering a period of stagflation um, a significant recession with inflation um, uh, coming with it. Uh, why is that? Um, coal is a lump of rock that can only be burned. And the desperate need for primary energy means um, that people prefer coal right now for a very important reason, which is you can just pile it next to your um, coal-fired power plant. It has you know, no storage costs. Train load after train load could just dump it into a giant pile. Um, and then you can secure your very basic um, base of Maslow's Pyramid need to make sure that the lights stay on uh, for your population. Oil uh, can also be burned. Uh, but also has substantial, you know, refining and up, you know, up value potential. Like you can make chemicals from it, you can um, uh, refine it into diesel, into gasoline. And the fact that dirty, rotten, high CO2 coal is today more valuable than WTI, corrected for units of trade and energy content, tells us something, and we believe tells us something. Meaning. Um, the second conclusion that we're going to make tomorrow is um, we look for confirmation of this insight. Um, and we look no further than the disparity, the shocking historic disparity between coking coal and thermal coal. Uh, so, what are those two types of coals? Um, thermal coal is the coal I just quoted, and that we, that we said is more valuable than oil. Um, the only thing you can do with thermal coal is burn it for heat, and then you, you know, um, boil water and spin a turbine and make electricity. Coking coal is a a premium version of coal, um, and coking coal is used to make steel. Um, historically, until very recently, coking coal has always sold at a premium to thermal coal. And why is that? Well, it it's got lower sulfur content. It's got higher BTU values. Um, it's a premium coal. It requires extra um, refining uh, in its in its processing when you. When you mine for it, you, you have a few extra steps in the factory before you load it onto the train and send it from Canada or you know Australia or Indonesia and you, can, you send it to um, China or India or, or uh, Vietnam, pick your favorite manufacturing center. Um, the coking coal is always sold at a premium to coal, and today um, you can't give away coking and coal and Thermopol is through the roof. Um, so, and this is despite the fact that we believe uh, although the market seems to be proving us wrong that uh, many uh, thermal coal-fired uh, power plants could in fact use um, coking coal. It's selling at 100 to $150 a ton discount, uh, depending on on which uh, grade that you look at and which market you look at. So thermal coal, which again, is another bizarre, um, really insane market signal that must mean something. And to us, again, we think it means um, the, uh, Desperate bid for primary uh, is going to be uh, way more important to the incremental economy than the uh, value added manufacturing sector. And then the last point that I, I would leave you with before giving you back is once again, um, as I think Tony mentioned earlier, you know, Hey, you know, Dutch CTF is off uh, 50% from the blow off top at, at hundred dollars per million BTU. Um, the spread still between um, the U S natural gas, and in particular, Canadian natural gas versus, um, you know, basically LNG pricing going into Europe and Asia is, it's astronomical, it's off the charts. Um, and so we're very interested in uh, any manufacturer that is based in the US that has natural gas as a primary input and for which their products are priced globally. Um, you know, if you look at fertilizer players, the global price for fertilizers creeping back up near the all-time highs. Um, from the sort of July timeframe, um, those people will be printing a shit ton of cash, uh, whether or not um, that cash is reflected in their current stock prices, is beyond me, um, but I, there are going to be companies for whom um, playing the spread in natural gas is going to be an epic all time uh, cash printing uh, opportunity for them and I would look to get long some of those equities uh, if that's the kind of thing that, you're, that, that you do. So those are our three points. Um, coal selling for more than oil is unbelievable. Coking coal selling for a huge discount to thermal is unprecedented. And anybody who can buy cheap natural gas, make something real and sell it uh, on the global market uh, is going to print cash in the next few, uh, three to six months.
0: Hey, Tim that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, really appreciate that. Quick, quickie, Quick question for you though. Um, and um, Dr. Uh, Anas Haji's in the room. Maybe he wants to jump up beyond here as well. Um, you know, the, the idea was, and Anas had made the point a few months ago when, you know, crude was up at 125, 130 that, um, you know, watch out, uh, reasonable chance could, could you know, barrel uh, change in demand one way or the other, uh, prices could fall precipitously. And he was, uh, how should we say, that observation was not widely uh, um, received or applauded. Uh, he's proven to be totally right. Um, I'm a big believer. I'm a conspiracy theorist. And I believe you are as well. Um, and someone earlier in this call mentioned it, that, that there may, in fact, be some uh, behind-the-scenes um, uh, machinations whereby the oil price is being uh, depressed in the short run in advance of the U.S. elections. But, again, I don't want this to make a political uh, debate. I mean, this happens all the time. I'm just curious from where you sit, Doomburg. Um, given that you're so involved in commodity markets, um, and you know the extent to which the the, the demand, the f- financial demand for oil, uh, has collapsed, or is maybe being um, suppressed deliberately, juxtaposing that with what you perceive to be the changes in physical demand for oil, do you think there's some credence to? And again, it requires speculation on your part, but that's sure. what it's all about. Um, do you think there's some not-so-hidden hand of you know government intervention going on here? Handshake agreements between certain East interests, perhaps, and the Biden administration, so on and so forth. And again, I don't want some political debate. Sure. Let's do it. But it is certainly surprising to some. Maybe you could just talk a little bit what you think is really going on in the oil market.
6: Well, I would say as an investor, if you're debating politics, um, that's negative alpha. If you're trying to understand politics, then you have the potential to create positive alpha. And so... In the context of trying to understand politics, I think you need to look no further than the um, desperate rate at which the Biden administration is uh, emptying the strategic petroleum reserves ahead of the November midterm elections. Four-week rolling average of daily um, injections of, of crude into the market is something like 950,000 barrels a day. That's finding its way its way to um, domestic and and importantly international refineries who have the excess capacity to produce finished products which then get you know um, moved around the world and have dampened uh, the price of gasoline in the U.S. which is Biden's number one focus and his obsession. Um, So I would say that if you think there is no manipulation in the uh, paper market for oil you would be naive Um, but our point earlier on the first one between coal and demand uh, coal and oil is that the demand for coal is just off the charts. Um, China, uh, Germany, um, Europe um, and um, so regardless of whether the paper market for oil is being manipulated, uh, the physical market for coal is just exploding. And um, despite oil being a provably uh, superior fuel with infinitely more uh, downstream use applications, the market is currently telling us they'd rather just have this black rock they can burn to produce electricity um, than this, um, you know, uh, a barrel full of potential value add. And there's something very meaningful. It could be that our interpretation of that chart uh, signaling towards sort of a stagflationary environment is the incorrect one, um, but that, that we're running out of reasonable explanations for such a market um, anomaly. And look, as you know, you've been around forever. When you see something on your screen that is both um, sort of uh, unprecedented from history and also um, uh, surprising you in a way that is very difficult to understand, um, you certainly can't quickly come to any conclusion. You could only try your best to guess what's going on, and that's what we're trying to do with our pro tier webinar tomorrow.
0: Yeah. And the last thing, Dunberg, before we go to uh, Jeff Garbaz, because um, you watch Europe closer than um, anybody, the European energy uh, uh, situation, and kudos to you for calling this out well in advance of others. Um, at the margin, um, is there anything noteworthy in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, from the political side, uh, whether it's what's going on in the UK or elsewhere? Which um, leads you to think that maybe we we're, we're, we're past peak ESG.
6: Um, I think that ESG is not going to go down without a violent fight, and um, and so now I, I wouldn't say we're past peak ESG. Um, on the plus side, um, things that maybe signal that, that, that I would say we're past peak stupidity um, would be you know Liz Truss's uh, statement, um, all of the above strategy for supply. Um, but there's a couple of wild cards on the downside. So um, the military situation, which we are the first to say we know nothing about and can't predict and have nothing to add, um, seems to be getting uh, more confrontational and not less. Um, if one is to believe the sort of uh, algorithm curated feed that Twitter would like you to see. Um, and so that's a wild card. And then the other thing that really strikes us is this uh, sort of coordinated focus on, quote, storage levels in Europe as if this matters um, tells us that there's a propaganda campaign at work here to try to, um, you know, remove some of the panic that might be beginning to uh, break out, um, to the extent that it has, uh, in in certain European countries. Um, you know, if, if if you can only store 10 or 15% of your needs, um, then the percent that you have stored is, is stupidly irrelevant. And yet we see country after country and, um, you know, uh, Twitter bot after Twitter bot and various other sort of high profile accounts um, pointing to, quote, percent of our storage capacity being filled, um, even though percent of your capacity that you need um, that you can store uh, is conveniently ignored. Whenever we see um, smart people um, uh, pointing to irrelevant statistics, uh, we find ourselves wondering whether there isn't a deeper sort of campaign underway. Um, and so, um, not clear yet. Um, and by the way, let's, let's, let's just say it I mean German PPI printing at 46 percent is a catastrophe it, it is it is a crisis the crisis is here the only question is what's next and how do we get out of it and how do you call the bottom and are you going to catch the knife and, and all the things that everybody in here has been talking about but um, you know the, the German PPI at 46 percent is a catastrophe um, especially where you're where, where yields are trading today and so um, the consequences of the bundling of the energy policy are here now and then the last part I'll leave you with and it's a point we make uh, we'll be making strong tomorrow, is uh, e- even when we get through this winter, um, we're going to be heading into spring with almost no gas and have to do it all over again. Like the, 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 the forward curve for Dutch GTF natural gas is pricing $50 per million BTU into 2024. $50 per million BTU compares to $3 per million BTU in Canada because uh, Justin Trudeau has decided there's no business case to capture that spread and Canadian natural gas is trapped. Uh, we, we really are living in a world of political absurdity and um, and and we'll have to just see um, how it plays out. Toomberg, I, I love listening to you because hey, you've got such wisdom. But
0: this is when I listen to you speak. Sometimes it almost sounds like I'm reading something from the Babylon Bee or the Onion. It's like you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you need to work in that you know famous quote from uh, Jean Claude Juncker. You know, when it becomes serious, you have to lie. I mean, you're talking about you know the smart people saying stupid things. This is just, it's like we're living in a parallel universe. I mean,
6: I just pinched myself. Well, well, let me give you some real numbers. So the United Kingdom, through its own stupidity, can store, wait for it, 1% of its annual natural gas, right? So the fact that um, the UK is currently sitting at 100% storage capacity um, is irrelevant. Now, Germany can store about 25%. Um, so the fact that Germany is sitting at you know 90% storage capacity is a good thing. Uh, doesn't mean they're going to get through the winter. Um, Austria can store 80% uh, and they're sitting at 90% full. Austria is going to be just fine. Um, pick your favorite country. This is all knowable data. But when people are bragging about percent of our storage that is filled, there's a whole second separate parameter that you need to look at, which is okay. Um, how much of your daily needs for natural gas can you pull out of that storage on any particular day, day if, if and when you need it? Um, and for much of Europe, they're woefully short. Um, and we'll see, right, Putin is still putting gas through Ukraine into Europe. That could end any time. Um, it's going to be an incredible winter. And look, we're again, we are hoping for a mild winter. We are hoping for peace. Um, we hope that Western Europe doesn't have to go through what it's staring down the barrel of. Um, if it's a deeply cold winter and hostilities continue to escalate, there's going to be a world of hurt. And, and when you have to ration, we didn't even get into it, um, the means by which you ration matter, like how if you don't have enough molecules for normal demand, the manner in which you allocate those molecules matters a lot and can either exacerbate um, or um, make, make, make the crisis a little better. Um, and um, we'll take the under on uh, the political leadership's capability in Europe uh, to, to allocate those limited molecules.
0: All right. Thanks, Stuber. That's great. Please stay there. I'm sure I have more questions. Let's just do let's get the batting order reset here. Uh, We've got Jeff Garbaz stepping up to the plate, and then Kfab, and then Amy, and then Michael Belkin. Hey, Jeff. What's up,
7: Jeff? Hey. Hey, how are you? Good. What's up, man? Good. So I thought I'd just throw some ideas out there um, of some things that are going on. So, George, remember the last time I talked to you was towards the end of July? It was the third week of July, and we were going through the fact that we were having this rally going on, and that... um, when and if it came to the end, we're going to hit the negative seasonality period. And if we had too many type fours in the work, then we, uh, then we could see some ugly um, tax selling. And uh, that's where we are right now. Suddenly, we got there. You know, it was two weeks off. Like you said, uh, the middle of August, you're getting your premium amount of crap from people. And uh, I had a couple of people who were like, oh, you're off, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah and you know now it looks really bad by the end of here's an interesting stat in the middle of august we had gone from 20 percent of stocks higher for the year up to 28 and then we finished august at 19 percent. and dare i say we're down around 14 percent right now so uh looks like some tax selling is being done remember that call right so jeff let's not you and i take victory laps what's the no, way no, no
0: no 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 I'm no just... but no but jeff in the interest of time let's let's
7: what's the way forward please the way forward is to look at some classic type fours right now, just to throw them out there, so people are aware of uh, of what could be sold from a uh, from a tax standpoint um, that would be vulnerable. So ASML, just going to do five or six really well known names. N O W, Adobe is a classic now, given that they just bought the company in the meltdown. Uh, Home Depot, Sherwin Williams, tied to to Home Depot. Uh, Union Pacific and CRL and CAT would be a couple interesting names. Um, what's happening right now, what's interesting is um, the Erlanger option rank, we look at all sectors and see whether put activity is extreme. And um, we only have three sectors right now. Typically, when we get to this point where we've been down now four or five weeks, looks like it's going to be five of six. And by the way, what's interesting is if you listen to media, no one's making it seem like it's been down five or six weeks. Um, they're making it sound like it's been much shorter, even though it's been longer in duration. So we need to get to like twenty out of twenty-four sectors being extreme to have another low that could be marked. So I didn't, I didn't have any confidence coming in today that that was going to be the case. So it's really interesting that people aren't massively hedging because I think everyone. From my conversations today, it was 90%. Oh, the Fed's going to pivot today, and la, 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 life is going to be great and wonderful. And guess what? That's not the, uh, the reality. What the market has decided after uh, 4 o'clock today, between 3 and 4, it went the other way. Um, next point is, if anyone goes to my Twitter page, I put up two charts, which is bullet 86. The first chart is from a speech I did last week At the Academy of Certified Portfolio Managers. And it's an awesome chart. It's from my buddy Greg Forsyth, who I work with, who I consider to be the the quiet quant out there, the least known guy, who's probably one of the best guys there is. And it's a chart of the top 500 stocks by market cap. And it looks like it looks at the number of up EPS revisions. And if you look at it, it peaked at like 430 at the end of 2021. And now we've dropped down to about 220. And if we looked at the uh, pandemic low, we got down to about 60 stocks. And if we looked at the 2008 low, we got down to um, 50 stocks out of 500. So we're only like halfway there on the number of downward revisions uh, that could occur. It's It's a hell of a chart, and it goes all the way back to 2021, and you can see where we were coming out of the the bottom there as well. We got down a little below um, 100. So there's more downward revisions that are uh, that are coming. The next chart that I put up is a is a Fed chart, and uh, George, I, I don't know if you can get to it on Twitter and take a look at it, but um, it's a really interesting chart because it's the weekly economic index the WEI, which you can plot on Bloomberg as well. It's produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, New York um, and it's an index of 10 daily and weekly indicators of real economic activity. And it's got three plots on it, the weekly economic index, a 13-week moving average, and then the GDP number. And you can see how since mid-21, this thing has been slowly dropping kind of bit by bit. And what's amazing on it, There's a shaded area. I purposely left it off for the presentation I did last week, and I I asked people what it is. I'll answer the question now. The shaded area was the last recession. Well, the last time I checked, we're in a recession now because we've had two quarters of negative growth. And it shows you where the Fed is at because they're not shading this particular area. They've left it out, the shading out. So I think that speaks world... Uh, to where the Fed is at, and if we look at the Jackson Hole speech, uh, Powell said the word inflation 52 times, and he sa- said the word recession twice. So, coming back to our work right now, we're, w- w- things look ugly. I mean, there's only a couple sectors that look good in the work, energy, utilities, and pharma. Um, if I look at the, the Dow stocks, Only two stocks in the Dow from our um, volume swing have positive volume, J&J and MCD, McDonald's. And uh, we're taking a uh, long, short approach uh, with our weekly screens of kind of low beta, high market cap. That said, um, the weaker stuff has been um, really, it's outperforming this week that outperformed last week in the in the struggle week, and um, you know if you look at the difference, the longs are down 196 through today. The shorts are down 317. Um, I, I have a feeling like you're you're getting to a really great point on the short side, especially if we break 3800. Like right. d- d- you may you may it may become a, a like a fest the next two weeks on the short Sorry, side. So, 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 so Jeff, you basically you think we could, we could have a wonderful week. We could, we could have big downside. Right? The market could break. The defense could, could just give way. Oh yeah. Because, because the weaker stuff is underperforming. Yeah. Yep. And uh, look, if, if the weaker stuff was doing better, no way would I be in that category, but it, but it's not. And it yeah, hasn't no, no. been. And it's so, I mean, it's, 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 it's probably, if you're a short guy, it's, it's gotta be one of the most important things you pay, t- yep. pay attention to. And if you aren't doing it through our work, do it on your own. Right. Uh, come right. up with your own process and, and figure out how to quantify strong stocks from weak stocks. Right. But the weak stocks are really uh, dropping. Um, so, right. so I agree j- with la- j- two, two, two last points. Yep. Um, Tom Thornton talking about FedEx. Um, I put up a tweet earlier this week on Costco, and I talked about FedEx. So when you say I FedEx something, that means you send something overnight. But now you're able to apply it to the stock market and say, my stock just got FedExed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> In other hey, words, Jeff, 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 quit while you're ahead. You can't, you, you're not going to, you're not going to, no, no, no,
0: no, come on, come on, no, seriously, seriously, seriously. So, Damn. so,
7: so, so, so I will, I will stop with this, but the, 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 stock that I showed, which I'm really worried about is uh Costco because it's a straight drop from uh from 500 to 400. Uh, revisiting the lows earlier this year. And uh, I'm in the camp of you don't want to buy any stock. I just had a conversation with a client about this. Forget about buying stocks that have a lot of air under them because if they break, they're going to get FedExed. You know, <laughs> that's all there is to it.
0: <laughs> Jeff, you heard hurting You stop. You got to stop.
7: <laughs> uh, I'm done. I'm done with that. All
0: right. Quit while you're ahead, dude. Just stay there. Let's stay there. All right. Let's keep it moving here. We got a great room. This has been awesome. I want to keep the pace up. So let's see if I got it right. We got Amy and then KFAB and then Balkan. Amy, what's up? Hi, I
8: think KFAB was actually before
9: me. You want to go, KFAB? No, ladies first, please.
0: All right. Sorry about that, KFAB. KFAB, she's cuter than you are. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Amy. What's up? Hi,
8: how is everyone today? Um... So, I haven't heard anyone really talk about this, and it's really where my focus is on is is that the Fed funds rate, the terminal rate. Um, So, going into uh, this, I mean, the market was trying to price in 4.52 and and it was pricing out, I'm sorry, 4.552. And he came out with 4.4 by end of the year, which I think it was 4 to 4.25 by end of the year, and 4.6 by end of 23, leading into the reduction in 24 and 25. So, I just would like to hear people's opinions on uh, a terminal rate of 4.4 before the end of the year. So, with that, I think that is drastic, yeah. and I just I don't hear very many people talking about it. Hey, so, so a- um, a-
0: a- a- Amy, are, are you saying Tina is dead? Is that what you're saying, Amy?
8: She's she's in
0: trouble. She's, she's in, in trouble. In the,
8: she's a damsel in distress. That's for sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I'm just curious what the panel's thought is on that because I haven't. All right,
0: mentioned. so 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 so, I think um I don't know what K Fab was going to talk talk about. That but but actually segues
9: really gonna... right into what I was. Yeah, to talk yeah
0: about. exactly. So K Fab's T-ball time. I was going to give it to you, and then Michael Belkin's also good on fixed income. So K Fab, take it away.
9: Well, as you know, George, in the last maybe three or four months, I've been trying to compete with Michael Belkin on the uh, most deliriously bearish person on your spaces. And I I think that to Amy's question, um, you know, if we go back to August and and Lakshman Achuthan's um, space with you um, at at Eckreed looking at leading indicators, they were basically talking about, they're still talking about the first synchronized global recession in 40 years um across 22 economies that they they gauge and that was before jackson hole and that was before today and and before the cpi print and i think what um the last three weeks have done at least for me is um it's really opened up the tail the left tail um relative to what's going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months and that you know, it's almost like Brannard and Powell or Thelma and Louise, like holding hands, looking to drive off off the cliff um, with with, you know, really looking to tighten into the teeth of that um, forecast that's already kind of baked in the cake. And, and that's before there's any kind of major credit accident, which with what they're doing is almost inevitable, even independent of what's going on in China, what's going on in Japan, what's going on in Europe. Um, so it may not even be a credit event in the United States that triggers all of this, but some kind of major credit event is almost predestined at this point with Thalmo Louise driving off the cliff, and that opens up that left tail. and And what does that mean? Well, again, people are so far in la la land. I mean, if if you just to use earnings as an example, um, you know, if if the S and P uh, revenue grows fifteen percent this year and five percent next year and you just slap an eight percent operating margin on that that's 150 in earnings right and 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 where are consensus earnings at nowhere even near that and that's a reasonably sanguine scenario that's not the left tail that's not you know uh anything major happening relative to the little credit event The, the last thing i'll throw in there Is uh, Joseph Wong, who was another one of your recent guests, the Fed guy who used to work at the Fed. I caught him on an earlier space today and he mentioned the idea that the Fed would revert back to some of the 2020 instruments and and, um, uh, policies that they deployed relative to this idea because you know Powell today saying it has to be compelling the drop in inflation Well, we know just based off of the mechanics and the stickiness of some of this stuff that's almost an impossibility in the next six months so if we start to see stuff break overseas and even in the united states some credit events they may go back to things like direct commercial lending even though that's technically in violation of the federal reserve act um that they have these other levers that they can pull that are not going to be cutting rates and going back to QE um, so I think people need to completely reorient what their cycle risk parameters are and that this myopic expectation that we're going back to fed QE uh, because something breaks I, I think that is just so completely wrong um absolutely so.
8: that's and that's sort of where I was leading with with my question was like when when Jeff was talking about getting FedEx um, I think if they move that fast, or four point four by end of the year, we're going to see a hell of a lot more FedEx uh, moments in the market because just the the, the rush to to for, of these companies. I don't know. I, I think it's uh, it's it's not good. Like when they to to refinance to to you know sell off that whatever it is. It's. I don't know. 4.4 4 was that, that was the most surprising thing for me today. So I expected four to 4.25. I did not expect, I, I expected 4.5. I was looking at March, 2023 and he's talking about 4.4 4 by end of the year. So I think we're going to see a lot more.
9: And that's yeah. And that's in the last three weeks, Amy, that's what we've seen is that the forward curve has started to reprice. Whereas they had been pricing and cutting next year, you know, the quote unquote pivot based off yes. of this this global backdrop that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Markets have repriced for Thelma and Louise. That's what yeah. they're pricing in now. Yeah. That's why you saw the 30 year rally today in price. And that's why you saw gold reverse and now starting to you know, maybe putting in a bottom. Those, those have been the two missing links to, to Michael Gayad's, um, you know, uh, what he was saying earlier as far as risk off. Oh. They You're starting to see that kind of flicker in the last uh, a couple of weeks, and I, today was just cementing. I mean, he's screaming this now. The Fed is screaming that this is what they're going to do.
8: But the bond market is screaming danger, danger, rule, robinson. I mean, the the two year. I, I watched the two year close to as a, a sort of uh, the closest indicator to Fed funds, and, and it's at four point oh five right now, and that it hasn't been over four since two thousand seven. So, um, it, it's it's just I don't know how you read a lot of this. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess I haven't really processed it all yet, but yeah, it's, um, it's messy. Well, no I think,
0: yeah, I think Amy, the last thing you said, it's messy. It's, 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 it ain't good. That's for sure. I mean, you were talking before about how, you know, Tina's in distress. I mean, Goldilocks locks has been, was proclaimed dead, you know, months ago. All right. So she's gone. All right. Tina, I think is already dead. No one's seen Tina. All right. So, I mean, this is not I me. Mean, my, my take on all this, like what happens to fixed income eventually, I don't really know unless people say, well, George, you know, hacking rates keep going up, we will have a recession. I'm like, okay, fine. Get bring bring the recession on, baby. Bring it. I mean, either way, it's it's horrible for risk assets, all right? And you know, pick your poison. Um, it, we you know we we had the great moderation with, you know, crazy uh, excess stimulus in the form of both monetary and fiscal. And I don't want to steal his thunder, he's been in here before and he's been so right. And I'm glad he's here and he's now next up. And so Michael Belkin, this may be a good place for you to step in and, you know, talking about risk assets, fixed income, et cetera. Um, Michael, are you there? Um floor is maybe, yours, Michael.
8: Maybe touch on, um, I don't know if you're, you're fixed, the, the fact that credit usage is the highest that it's been in 40 years. And now interest yep. and rates on credit cards are,
0: Yep. at all-time highs. Yep. So That's is, great. What, is... what does that mean? Michael Belkin. Hi, Michael. How are you, my friend?
10: Good. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, we're good. Go ahead, Michael.
10: Okay. Hey, thanks. Hey, this is great, George. Uh, hey, uh, by the way, I'm with you on biking, and I'm headed up to Whistler here for downhill biking at Whistler Bike Park. <laughs> it's probably a little more exciting than road ride, road riding, but uh, it's the right time of year get it in before winter. Um, so today was a big I think this was a big day in the market, right? They tried to ramp it up on uh, Powell's press conference. You know, the S&P was up on one and a half, almost 2%, closed down almost 2%. So that was a big, I think it was a major reversal. Um, I'm going to present a couple of things. Some tactical trades I think are setting up and then some longer term trades. Um, So so give you some trading ideas here. Uh, First of all, earnings. Okay, Q. To S&P 500 earnings, according to Standard and Poors, 46.87. That's so far below what FactSet is saying. I don't know where FactSet gets their number, but those are operating earnings from the index provider. Okay, that's um, the the consensus earning target S&P for next year is 243 bucks, which is like what you know, 60. 60, they're expecting 60 bucks a quarter. It's already 46.87, which is annualizing at 188. So it's 23% below next year target already if you annualize Q2. Um, my, uh, I, so what I do is uh, forecasting using a proprietary model. It's a little bit like Fourier analysis, comes out of my studies, different ap- approach than most people use probably. Anyways, my target for S&P earnings 12, 18 months is uh, below 28 bucks. That's quarterly which annualizes at 111. So even the most bearish person, Michael Wilson, who I like a lot and respect, right? He's still like in the 200s, like for next year, he's saying it's going to be 220 or something. I just think that's like double what it's it's going to end up being. So my earnings target is down 54% below what everybody's expecting. So if you plug that into your forward earnings estimate for the market. The market's just like insanely overvalued. We're headed into earnings season. FedEx was probably the first. And of course, uh, there's some great comments here. I, I'm I'm really, I really enjoy being in the in the company of everybody that's, that's on here. I heard some great ideas here. Um, FedEx, obviously it's at the center of the global commerce system. And um, so I think that just, it's very bad foreboding about what um, the, the, pre-announcements that we're going to hear right away. I mean, starting now, this is pre-announcement seasons. So earnings are going down big time. Markets overvalued. Um, what do you do? Here's what's setting up. I have, right now, I have the daily, weekly, and monthly turning down for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. So daily, that's uh, I have a 12-period forward forecast. So next two weeks down, That's 12 days, two weeks, ballpark. Weekly, 12 weeks, three months, three months down. Monthly has been down for a while. It never wavered. So my monthly turned negative at the beginning of the year, late last year. So they're all kind of kicking into the downside. And I I heard those comments about the DeMarc indicator. You know, we've been down a lot of days in a row. Maybe it'll happen fast. You know, It could happen very quickly at this point. Um, But anyways, uh, the VIX... So the market's headed down, in my view. I, I think you should be short. You know, period. Like I think it's a great time to buy put options. Here's why: VIX, twenty-eight today. Strong upward model forecast. Okay, so the VIX is probably going to explode. It's just really it's depressed by what for whatever reason I don't know. People like to sell volatility. I think there's going to be a volatility squeeze. So that means the point is. Options are still relatively affordable. And they're not cheap, but they're going to get a lot more expensive. So you could get inputs. I think you could get a volatility expansion as well as a big payoff directionally. So I like shorting the Nasdaq, QQQ's deep liquid, 270 is a good place to start. 270 December puts. Don't none, none of this short-term stuff, man. You know, those those just too crazy and too volatile. But out out three four three months or something. So. Two QQQs, December, 270 puts. For a trade, remember options go to zero. The time decay just keeps going down. So you don't want to be long these forget, you know, put them on and forget about them. For for a trade, you know, one month, two month view puts. What else? Um bonds, TLT, interesting day today. Up uh, up a percent. If the Nasdaq. I mean, with the S and P down one and a half percent. So that's something I've been looking for. It's been painful. Um, it hasn't worked. Uh, but um, so TLT is at one oh eight. Two hundred week average is one thirty eight. That's up eight percent. Nothing fat. You know, nothing huge. It's actually more than that. Like twenty something. It's more points than that. Um, but anyways. Why would bonds rally when the Fed's raising interest rates? We've had some great comments already about that. Um, I think um, macro traders, hedge funds, et cetera, have had a great year. They're short bonds. There's a huge, ginormous short position, 1.4 million uh, contracts, which is insane across 30, 10, and five, last time I looked. Um, So, there could be a gigantic short squeeze in long bonds, and uh, we had some comments before about why would bonds rally risk-off, simple as that. Out of stocks, into bonds, and I witnessed that, I've said that before on here, when I was at Solomon Brothers, we saw a gigantic pension fund asset allocation in the 87 crash, do that precise trade. They sold all their stocks, paralyzed our trading floor, bought you know, and shifted into bonds. And that's when Tudor Jones made his name, by the way, by buying bonds. He made more money uh, being long bonds. He said, according to him, than uh, being short stocks because bonds are so liquid. So I like bonds. It's very been very painful. It's not like I want to go out and you know mortgage a house and buy bonds. But if you're going to look looking for some contrarian trade, long. Treasury bonds, not the short end. I do not like the short end. Fed's still raising, so the yield curve could just invert, you know, go into crazy more inversion. Okay, dollar. Now, I'm looking for the top in the dollar. Sure didn't happen today, but it's another one of those overrun positions. And why would the dollar go down? Because the US economy is headed down. Okay, so my forecast, we've had a lot of comments on that, about that already on here. Um, My forecast for all these economic indicators, as another uh commentator pointed out, we have two quarters down in GDP, and this one's looking flat at the latest from Atlanta GDP now. It'll probably end up being negative. Um, so economy down, earnings down, that's why bonds would rally. And the psychology of the market, let's talk about psychology for a second. I think it's really, really messed up. I've, I've been getting a lot of pushback. I actually have one big hedge fund client. All they want to hear from me is when I get pushback. Because they think contrarian sentiment, um, like when people are too uh, on one side of the trade, they're going to get squeezed. I've been getting a lot of pushback on the bond, uh, long bond idea. So that's something for you to to consider. Um, people do not, they, they don't see a reason for bonds to go up and there's a massive short position.
3: Um, Mike, 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 real quick on that point, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the the Treasury part is important for people to realize that it's not just in absolute terms, but also relative. Right. So in classic risk off periods where you have high volatility in equities, stocks go down, treasury yields on the long end drop, you can, on a relative basis, get 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 basis points within weeks of in terms of the spread against equities. Yeah. I'm not saying that haphazardly. Right? If you look at the data in terms of historical corrections, when treasuries move on a relative basis, it's, it's, like, it's like convex tail type investing on a relative basis, right? So that 8% may not sound like a huge number. But that could happen as the S&P is down 20% as it's going up 8%.
10: Exactly. That's so that you're talking about the ratio, TLT, Correct. S&P exactly. 500 ratio. That's what I look at. Huge buy signal on that. So that's for institutions. Um, big asset allocators, they can only do like three things, you know, bonds, stocks, or cash, or maybe go- little gold. But a lot of them, they're constrained. So that single, you know, binomial, whatever, uh, decision, out of stocks into bond, uh, into bonds. I think it's setting up big time for that's that's for big institutions. That's not for little traders, you know. So n- different di- different uh, audience for that trade. Uh, let me let me run down the list real quick. I don't want to take all day on this. Um, tech relative to the S and P turning down big time. So X L K divided by S P Y down. So there's been a lot of comments on that about Fang over-owned, Apple, all that blah blah blah. Total agreement. Um, tech. And, of course, there's a Bloomberg story, or was it Reuters? um, uh, Hedge funds loaded up in August on tech. Um, So they're on the wrong side of this. I think they'll be puking tech um, along with everybody else. But getting back to the psychology, so... I've been getting a lot of, a lot of my clients have been saying, why isn't the market going down? Why is it going? Everything is obvious. You read the headlines, what's going on. You get FedEx. Why isn't it down more? Um, Retail is buying. If you look at the flows, it's been all institutions selling for like months, you know, for six weeks or eight weeks or something. Retail is still buying. So retail, these, these poor people, you know, God bless them. They've been programmed by 13, 14 years of QE that the Fed's going to bail them out every time the market goes down. So if you look at the market every day at the open, T-R-I-N, it shows there's like huge buying. These guys are like kamikaze buyers into the open every day. I don't know where it's coming from, but there's a huge number of buy orders. So the market opens down. The game is always to Bring it back to unchanged. The queues open down 1%, 2%. Buy the dip, buy the open. So that psychology has got to get crushed, you know. I mean, for the market to go down, retail has to get taken out. So I think they're on the wrong side of things. It's been working for them for short-term trading. But, I, but I mean, come on, we're down. The market peaked August 15th. And we're down, you know, big time from there. We're almost back to the lows of, you know, we're 4% from the lows um, b- back where we were in july so anyways uh end of june july i think we're headed a lot lower i think retail is going to get taken out then who is the buyer there's just like no buyers um a couple other uh oil we talked about oil um my long-term forecast for physical oil points straight down and in 2008 it went up big peaked in the middle of the year and then went down 50 percent i'm still short crude oil all these things it sounds crazy if you read the headlines because the shortage in Europe, you know, et cetera. Um, uh, what happened with energy stocks, of uh, which I've been wrong on, is the XLE USO ratio, in other words, energy stocks relative to crude oil, went up big time. So I think there was a kind of over. There's been a buy into um, into something after the peak in energy prices. People decided now's the time to load up on energy stocks. I'm not a perma-bear on oil and energy stocks. 18 months ago, these things were screaming by. Nobody wanted to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Now, big institutions, um, the latest uh, B of A survey, second largest overweight position. Um, uh, So, dangerous, tech is dangerous. I think short tech, you know, that fits in with the short QQQs. Now, something else that's sitting up. Oh, by the way, let's talk about some, one of the technical thing on the market. Uh, advanced decline stuff looks terrible. Today, the McClellan summation index, I don't know if you guys follow that, it crossed zero on the NYSE. They're both negative, uh, NASDAQ and NYSE. And that's what happened right before the 87 crash. So it's just something else to keep an eye on. It's, in other words, more stocks are declining and it's accelerating to the downside. With day three negative for the McCle- McClellan summation index today, minus 542 very negative signal on the market now some other things that are setting up silver was up seven percent last week Um, i do a gold stock report as well as a belkin report i published two things belkin report and belkin gold stock uh, forecast anyways the gold stocks are looking really interesting they're bottoming they've had the stuffing knocked out of them and uh while the market was going up they were going down uh peaked in april i believe gdx down huge they look really bottoming to me. Um, it, I, it's going to be hard for them to rally much, you know, if the market crashes, but I would keep an eye on the GDX and stocks. Here's some of the stocks that it look like they're really bottoming to me. Symbols, AG, that's First Majestic, Core, CDE, Hecla, HL, uh, MUX, uh, BVN, KGC, Kinross, Eldorado, EGO, uh, even Barrick and Newmont. They've, they're both kind of crushed. So if you're looking for a tactical trade when the dust settles here, again, it might be hard for them to rally uh, much well, if the market's severely uh, weakening. But gold was up today. GDX was up today in a down market. Interesting uh, position. Um, and the silver-gold ratio uh, has a huge buy signal. So, uh, like I said, silver was up seven percent last week. Gold wasn't—you know—was up hardly at all. So, silver outperforming gold, new signal, strong upward forecast—that's a bull signal for precious metals. So, when silver outperforms, there's usually um, precious metals go up. It's not a bear signal for the market. So, you should be asking yourself, what would make precious metals rally, even when the dollar—you know dollars is up like a percent or something today. Gold stocks, so, and gold and silver are up. So, could be you know geopolitical Russia, Ukraine, something. Who knows? Uh, uh, China, Taiwan. I don't know. Setting up for something. All I can say is gold and gold stocks, looking for an excuse to rally. I don't know what the excuse is at this point. And finally, um, last but not least, the only two sectors. These are for uh, big institutions: utilities and staples. Those are the uh, utilities have been a huge outperformer, like outperforming the market by twenty percent or something. This so far this year. That's XLU and Staples XLP. Now, these are not, I'm not saying go out and buy these absolute terms, but for institutions who are stuck being long, you know, you have to have a long equity exposure. Um, A lot of people are in that position, you know, big money managers. They they can't just go 100% to cash. The only thing, the only major sectors that look like they want to keep outperforming are utilities and Staples. And those are just total chicken longs, right? Higher yielding. Nothing stocks that nobody wants to own, really. Like you're gonna buy PEG. I mean, it's there's no, it's not sexy, right? It's not exciting. Same thing, um, you know, General Mills, things like that. You know, they came out. But so um those are the only, if you're a big portfolio manager, overweight utilities and staples, underweight tech. And so there's a couple pair trades setting up there. So long XLU, short XLK. That's a huge alpha potential there. Same thing, XLP, XLK, even long GDX short uh xlk so a lot of pair trades tactical things for uh fixed income managers um i'm uh, i'm sorry for big portfolio managers and um just to get back to the idea i'll I'll stop right here uh shorting the market i think we're in breakdown territory i think it goes down big i think uh, retail is going to get taken out and after that there's like nobody there and i you know there, there may be some you, – you, people are bearish. Yeah, sentiment is bearish. But have they completely – do I see signs of capitulation out there? No, not at all. It's going to look – at the bottom, retail won't want to – they'll be getting margin calls. Yeah. They won't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So, yeah, Mike, yeah, I think
0: yeah, the, my, yeah, Michael, I think the last point you made is really important. People forgotten about it. That is, you, know, you had that over a trillion dollars of retail buying last year. And there's been hardly any selling. I can't remember the last numbers 40 billion, 50 billion, whatever. And people have taken that as a given and, and they've forgotten about it, but they they haven't even thought about puking yet. All right. But that's still in front of us. Not to mention, I think you're going to have massive, massive hedge fund redemptions as we go into the fourth quarter here. And so, um, you know, it's just, and I, but let me ask you this um, you and I have known each other for so long. I asked this question last time, but for those that don't follow you, may not don't know your work as well. I'm always impressed not just to hear what your signal says, whether you're bullish or bearish on a particular on the market or a particular asset, but also um, the intensity of the signal and where we are in the continuum. It's early, it's it's, it's middle, it's late. So you're bear. So you know what's changing the margin for your, your your negative views on the market is this the signal's not brand new, but I, I gather the intensity is still uh, very strong on these signals. Is that, is that correct?
10: Yeah, long, long-term long monthly signals. So monthly, 12-period uh, forward forecast, monthly data, 12 months, one year. That started at the beginning of the year, right? So we're about um, maybe 60% through time-wise through this move down with no end in sight. That can get That can extend, right? So it's as strong as ever, super strong. That's monthly. Weekly. Is just beginning to kick into the downside again, so and that's pretty a strong fresh signal. So three month view down, twelve month view down about halfway through, and the daily turning down too. So I don't know what you know what's going to keep this thing up um, other than uh, I, it just doesn't. You know my confidence level is pretty high. All the uh, all the cycles seem to be coming together to the downside now.
3: Can I can I just add two quick comments on like, uh, so this point about utilities and treasuries I, i'm i, I recall michael, I heard... michael,
0: michael 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 i'm sorry i'm sorry um we've got a pretty full stage and I, I i think we've spoken enough about utilities and and, and, and
3: well, no, i was just gonna make a, make a quick mention about the 87 crash because i'm pretty sure mike that 10-year yields were spiking before that and utilities were strong in advance of the 87 crash
10: yeah i'm um, also one interesting group then insurance was the best performing group the week of the 87 crash and i've actually um Insurance is like a low beta uh, defensive financial group. I'm not, oh, I'm not bullish on financials overall, but all of a sudden I'm getting uh, outperformed signal on insurance stocks in Europe. We haven't even talked about Europe. There's no time for that. But Europe, I can't believe the cyclicals haven't crashed there yet. They're going to be t- cutting off the, turning off the power. Good grief. They're still buying auto stocks and industrials. I don't know what's going on. Whoever's buying Europe, you know, good luck. But um, yeah, so the, the low beta... Utilities, things like that—huge outperformance uh, potential in a crash.
0: Awesome, Michael's always great to hear from you. Please stay on stage. I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions. Um, going to go a little bit out of order here because we had some technical difficulties. Um, we're going to do Schmuckatelli, and uh, the, the guy with the best Twitter handle on Twitter. Period. Joe, always good to hear from you. Um, particularly curious. Your insights, uh, in particular on the military situation, what's going on in Ukraine, you were you and Lomfond—I don't know where he is—I haven't seen him for a while. Were very prescient and correct, going way back to February, um, before you know the first uh, uh, troop moved. You were warning everyone that no, this is real. He's going to invade. He's going to invade, and all the talking hands on CNBC and the rest were completely wrong, and you were completely right. So I'm just kind of curious, Joe, um, where you sit right now. I, I know you don't have any inside information or anything, but. Just using your good old common sense, um, what, what's your take on what's going on in Ukraine right now? You know, Putin making noises about mobilizing. Um, I've been reading stories as well. People are concerned that he hasn't been given really an easy off ramp. And so this is things kind of heading to a, you know, boiling to a head. So, you anyway, any wisdom you can impart on us vis-a-vis what's going on in the Ukraine, plus if anything else you want to talk about, I'd be very grateful. Good to see you, Joe. The floor is yours. Thank you, George.
11: Uh, thanks for having me up. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, actually Matt Warder had a space last night. We we're all anticipating Putin's speech and, uh, he was giving the speech as we were on there. And so there was a lot of good discussion there. Matt water, Matt water, great follow for any of you guys that are interested in coal and just life in general, Matt's a wonderful human being and, uh, and a coal expert, probably the most brilliant coal guy out there. Um, so look in short, I'll, I'll keep this very brief. Um, uh, Putin is weak, okay, and he wouldn't have done this. This is a sign of weakness. Um, Also, observe Azerbaijan, Armenia. Observe Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. All around what he wanted to be a greater Russia, things are falling apart at the seams. Uh, He's losing his perceived and real authority in the various uh, outreaches of the old Russian empire. And um, I think that we're seeing more and more uh, symptoms of this who in February believed that there would be a, you call it what you want, either a, a, uh, a general mobilization or a, or a limited mobilization of additional troops in Russia in late September. Um, so this is a sign of weakness, okay? Now, I, I read carefully the, the text of the speech Anybody who's a veteran with military experience or with skills that the military could use. So that's a pretty gaping, uh, that's a wide uh, uh, loophole there, Uh, can be drafted into the military, can be drafted into the Army. Uh, There's also been reports of busloads of prisoners. Basically, they've been given offers. If you serve on the front for six months and you uh, serve honorably, and you make it through alive, uh, you'll be your your sentence will be vacated. If you die, you have a choice: you can either die here, or you can die there, a war hero. And uh, they're shipping prisoners to the front via prison buses to uh, you know either for cannon fodder or to back up the troops that are there. These are signs of weakness. Okay. Uh, w- well, you might say, "Oh, well, Putin's weak." Well, you know what? There's nothing more dangerous in, na- in, in nature than a wounded animal that's been cornered. And this is what scares me. So yeah, the Ukrainians have made tremendous uh, steps forward over the last few weeks, taking back significant territory in the Donbas and in Izium. By the way, they found another mass grave in Izium. The human atrocities continue at at unbelievable um, levels. I mean, you know, mass graves, and it's become so normalized. But please. Take a moment to think about the atrocities that Putin is committing. He is not bounded by any kind of standards of behavior that we have in the West. And so we shouldn't therefore mirror image upon him our morals because he doesn't really seem to have any. But back to the point, uh, I think it'll be harder for longer. Uh, So this thing is going to continue. Ukraine has indicated they won't be happy until every Russian soldier is out of Ukraine. And Putin is showing, especially with this limited mobilization, that he's not backing down one bit. This is an existential issue for him. He realizes that if he leaves with anything short of victory, uh, not only would it mean a loss of power, but it could could actually mean the loss of his life. So what I'm worried about is how desperate will he get and uh, how much more ruthless will he become? He's already been attacking power stations. Um, I haven't ruled out uh, that he might consider the use of WMD, and I'm talking mainly bio or chemical in that regard. And if that happens, you know it. it you know uh, this whole thing goes into a whole different order. Um, And so that's kind of my general look right now. In short, for the people in this room that are worried about, you know, thinking about their investments, I think this goes on for the foreseeable future. Neither side has shown that they're going to back down. Both sides uh, have shown that they're going to continue. And uh, also, I I don't believe Ukraine right now has the wherewithal to completely and totally remove Russia from every inch of their soil. And until that happens... We have a stalemate or a continuing battle. So uh, that's what I see right now, George.
0: So, <laughs> um, so this is going to you, you take on the over under longer or shorter. You're taking the over, just so we're clear on that. Is that, is that right?
11: I, I'm taking the over, and then if there is a if there's a discrete moment, a quantum moment of WND use or um, just something appalling to the world that could change. That could change the dynamic here. But if it keeps going as it is, this thing could go through winter.
0: Wow. It's, um, wow. And Joe, I mean, it, it's it's so hard to know, but do you have any um, further insights vis-a-vis um, what's going on behind the scenes, any uh, back-channel, commu- just, maybe just guesses, but is, are, are there back-channel communications going on between... You know, between the the U.S. and Russia, and and or is it just there? Or as you said, each side is just getting backed into a corner. It's, it's becoming they're becoming more and more distant. It's becoming more destructive as opposed to constructive.
11: George, um, like a good, I would say, I I believe there must be okay in diplomacy. You have to have a means of communication with the other side, even if you keep that uh you know kind of low-key and you don't advertise it and you, you know you keep it secret there's got to be lines of communication so you can bet that there's third-party uh, intermediaries you know it could be the indians it could be some other sure. third-party country that might be acting as a conduit but i have no information on that and i don't want to purport to have that kind of information um i would say this there's there's a popular line of reasoning out there that at a certain point uh someone is going to uh Basically, uh, take out Putin, and um, I, I strongly disagree with that. Um, just look at—I mean, just yesterday, another oligarch fell out a window. Um, it, it seems like anybody who who shows any sign of dissent whatsoever is being dispatched with very quickly. Either at the very least, they're they're um, out of out of their job if they're in government, um, or they're out of the public eye, or worse, they're they're just killed. Uh, usually it's the latter. So, so he's systematically eliminated anybody that showed signs of any kind of resistance whatsoever. So I really don't believe that anybody close to his inner circle right now um, has the psychological leanings or with a wherewithal to do anything that would take out Putin. So, uh, so I think he, if anything, he's, he's stronger within his inner circle now than he's ever been uh, because he's on guard and he's taken out any perceived opposition. Um right. Uh, you know, and, and the Russian people have been trained quite well. He's brutally suppressed any any type of uh, protests. So people should not expect any kind of democratic protest to break out either. So what we have here is a dictator who is carrying forward with his will. And, um, you know, how it will end, um, it, it's going to end very badly uh, for one side or the other because both are entrenched and both are, are dedicated, you know, on, on balance, the Ukrainians, are. Th- their morale is extremely high. Mm-hmm. They have some of the best weapons the West has to offer. These HIMARS can hit targets from 10 and 15 kilometers within a 50-foot radius. These are extremely capable weapons, and they've done a lot of good things with them. I, in fact, I believe the HIMARS have helped them to take uh, good, good uh, portions of the Donbass Um, so the ukrainians show no sign of letting up what i am worried about is escalation on the russian side and if he uses asymmetric warfare by taking out power stations uh continuing to go after uh civilian population centers with cruise missiles or something much worse than that which i alluded to earlier wmd or um you know attacking nuclear power stations things
0: of that sort joe just one thing um and still up here, so you may be interested in that. Well, whatever. Um, when you talk about, it, he's not held to standards, um, of behavior that most people would be He's, his, his he, he lacks a moral compass. Um, when you start thinking about, you know, just turning the lights out or turning the heat off on Europe, uh, Western Europe, this, um, this, th- this winter. I mean, he literally has them by the balls and given the way he thinks, the way he behaves, his worldview, again, not, I, I'm not suggesting you have any particular insight on this, Joe, but um, it certainly it'd be, it'd be, it wouldn't be much of an ask, really, for him, given the way you describe him, to imagine him just turn, turning the lights out or turning the heat off on Western Europe this winter, would it?
11: Oh, I totally agree with that. The only countervailing um, debate argument to that would be he actually does benefit from the currency he's receiving, from selling his gas, oil, and coal to the world. And make no mistake, it's getting to market. It's getting to market. Is it declining? Yes, it's declining a little bit. Um, not as much as people originally had hoped for back in February and March. But um, uh, there's a natural decline going on because of uh, a brain drain and uh, lack of technology. Sure. But they're they're patching it together and they're making it work. But um, the short answer to your question is yes, I would not put that past him. And I think the only thing that keeps him in the game is the currency that he does get at these exorbitantly high gas prices.
0: Right. Wow. Hey, Schmuck!
8: You did see that Zelensky came out with five non-negotiable conditions to, like, I guess, a resolution with Russia, right? You see that he spoke at the UN, a recorded, a pre-recorded announcement.
0: Amy, what was this again? No, no, Amy. No, Amy. This is Pelosi.
8: No, no, Zelensky.
0: Oh, Zelensky. Sorry, Zelensky. Sorry. sorry, Yeah. Sorry.
8: So Zelensky, he, he had a a pre-taped. I guess speech we'll call it, for the U.N. And he listed five non-negotiable requirements for peace with Russia. And he said punishment for Russian aggression, restoration of Ukraine's security, Ukraine's territorial integrity, security guarantees for Ukraine, and punishment um, for war crimes. He specifically said castration. Um, But he... Those are his, I guess, his five conditions that he listed out.
11: Wow! Right, so that, that lets <gasps> you know the general frame of mind. Like that's that's a bold stance. That's not somebody who looks like he has any quid in him at all. So you know where the Ukrainians oh, stand.
8: Yeah, and he also said that that the world, not just Ukraine, the world can't give in to um, him okay. saying they're going to go nuclear because the next, you know, tomorrow he could say, "Well, we're going to invade Poland." Oh. Um, but if, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to go nuclear. So he's basically saying nobody nobody
0: buy into that shit. Amy, you're a barrel of laughs today, my dear. <laughs> Unreal. All right, Joe, stay up there. I'm sure you'll get some more questions here. Let's keep this moving. It's been an incredible room. You know, we've been going for a little over two hours. I think we'll, we're going to stop this at 6.30, so we're, I'm, I'm serving the 21-minute warning. Um, so in order, I think it's Wall Street silver and then gnostic wall street silver good to see you what's up
12: wow you're making me follow belkin and and joe after that i mean i i got nothing man i
0: get
13: nothing for you
12: <laughs> but uh um i you know they belkin i'm blown away by what belkin was saying so uh hats off to you sir i i was very impressed and i'm going to be following you going forward um but you know i have more of a question than any any broad statement going you know i i think back to 2008 and, and the great financial crisis and what sort of you know we all know it, Lehman brothers is what tipped it off because Lehman got so far on the wrong side of so many of these highly leveraged uh plays they were doing in the in the in the bond market and does anyone have any insight i mean i, I got to think what's really going to trigger the Fed into changing direction going forward is going to be something systemic, something that's not just the market going down or you know, price movements one way or the other. It's, a, it's some systemically important entity, some huge hedge fund that's failing. Someone's on the wrong side of a lot of these huge moves that we're seeing, and not everything can be hedged. And does anyone have any real insight as to who's feeling the pain out there right now? Are any of the banks just really getting crushed in their derivative positions right now? Or, so, any, you, you know what I'm, I'm, that's what I think is going to be the trigger here. If anything is someone, someone key to market operations, just being really in trouble at some point. And <laughs> I, I got to ha- think that that's coming soon.
6: I have a suggestion, um, something to keep an eye on. It's the counterparties to the European power producers who are facing massive margin calls because of their hedges as, um, uh, as we saw the blow-off top in electricity prices over the past two weeks, but that, that, but of course, you know, central bankers have gotten much better at um, at dealing with such crises, and and we've become dulled to the headlines. But you know, a trillion dollars here worth of margin calls. Um, there's counterparties on the other side of those margin calls, and I think they're the European banks. Yeah,
0: I'm going to Wall Street, uh, Silver. I'm going to make a, 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 a shooting from the hip. Um, the real debt accumulation this cycle. At least, let's just look at through the through the various economic actors out there. The U.S. private sector. I mean, you look at debt. I mean, I don't want to refer to debt service ratios people commonly refer to because interest rates are so low. So of course those ratios look all right. But even even if you look at total debt levels, the real problems at the at the uh, uh, sovereign level, not so much the private level, and, and even more more than the U.S. It's these foreign countries. So whether it's an EM blowing up, or you know, we haven't really talked much about China here. Um, you know, and and so my, if you said to me, you know, look, we'll never know a priori who it is, what it is, you never can know. No one, all right. But if I had to guess, I think it's going to be a government somewhere. Um, you know, whether it is maybe some country, maybe, maybe an EM problem somewhere, um, rather than. You know, a US bank. I mean, ultimately, when it all goes to shit, of course the banks get nailed. But the thing is, they they were, you know, they were, one of the many things they did out of the GFC and everything, you know, the change in the capital requirements, all the rest of it, um, they made them less vulnerable to, uh, to, you know, to getting into trouble. It doesn't mean they won't get in trouble, but they're not the weakest link in the chain this time. So, you know, they always say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I actually think it's going to be a government that gets into trouble. I mean, who knows? Maybe going back to the European um, debt, uh, the European energy situation, maybe people start looking at, you know, we, we, we're we getting all this all this extra spending by European governments to offset the higher um, uh, uh, energy costs, and people start looking at the U.K. budget deficit or whatever. I, I actually think it's going to be a sovereign that gets in trouble this time. That's just my guess. I don't know if anybody else in the panel wants, wants to hazard a guess. Anyone? All right. Not hearing that. Um, Let's move on. So I think we've got uh, Chad and then got, no, we've got Gnostic and then Chad. Gnostic, my friend, what's up?
13: Oh, everybody keeps taking my questions and what I was going to say. I was going to say it's going to be a sovereign or a semi-sovereign, demi-sovereign problem. Long-term capital resulting from Russia decline in in its currency. Or somebody reflecting off a a sovereign debt of some sort just suddenly turns around and explodes. Uh, and there we've got the leading one. Uh, but, Doomberg, your comment on coal. Um, we're in a, in a coal shipping deal out of BC, and we're getting the the operator is reestablishing a mothballed coal mine to ship coal to a previous customer in Japan. And now there's bids coming in from other Japanese customers uh, sitting down wanting it. And even coal at its current price phones are going off with people looking for supplies of coal in places that I never thought they'd be doing. But the follow-up question to you on that is, Westphalia is full of coal. What would it take for Germany to actually bring its coal-fired generators back online?
6: Well, they're doing a lot of that, um, perversely, um, we would say. Um, But yeah, I mean, your anecdote is totally consistent with um, what we're hearing from the market. The part that i don't i can't figure out is this coking coal, and I'd, be, I'd shoot it back to you and say um you got a plausible explanation for me what for why a sort of higher btu lower sulfur quality coal is not being bought up at 150 discount i mean I, i'm just totally confused by it um so oh, you know, I've, my- I've,
13: oh yeah yeah i mean that it, there's a simple answer to that uh thermal coal uh and generating coal they just need more and more of it and they're stockpiling uh, just in case so the the quantity shipments and quantity orders of thermal coal has gone through the roof uh, just because everybody wants exactly what you were talking about. I can store it. I can stick it someplace. I've got backup. I've got it. It's it's emergency supplies in case it's needed in places where it's not there. And thermal coal has a pretty standard delivery and pretty standard demand demand curve, whereas uh, metallurgical coal has a pretty standard demand curve, whereas uh, thermal coal has gone down its demand curve so far suddenly it's spiking and that's creating a a demand for uh, that's exorbitant relative to its shipping. I also sent you an email that, that says some of the other stuff. So there's coal export ports that are now under strike notice. Uh, mm. That if they go on strike, now there's a shipping, um, a shipping problem added to the, the coal delivery problem and coal delivery demand increases. So there's multiple things that are impacting it. So inflation is reflecting on the salary demands for uh, coal shipping terminals. So you can't, you can store it in the shipping terminal, but you can't get it up. You can't load it on the ships. And now you've got an increased one. So that strike notice that's gone out has basically caused the uh, buyers to go in and say, Hey, I, you know, get it here fast. Cause if there's a strike in delivery stuff, you know, we're really stuck. So they're, they're just going after it like crazy right now.
0: So <clears throat> we have an answer. The best answer it's coming as to the sovereign Newman. It's yours. Hey, hey there. Martin. Yeah. So, I mean,
2: look, Michael Belkin and George Noble, two people who maybe called close to the top in 1989 in a little country known as Japan. That was where the original QE experiment continued to this day. And I think that if we're looking for a sovereign to point the finger at as to where this house of cards comes down, my vote would be Japan.
6: Not not a bad guess.
2: That's a Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
13: that was cool. Doomberg, you may have called it.
6: Yeah. It's um, yeah, no, I mean if you look at the weakness of Japanese yen and then this uh, this, you know, um, this this orgy of buying in primary energy sources tells you the sort of real truth here as to what's going on. And and I think we had, we had a good discussion earlier about, um, about the, the, just the violence of the move of the Japanese yen uh, is really historic. And when we look back at this era from, you know, in five to 10 years from now, um, you know, when you're in the middle of a crisis, it's sort of hard to sort of um, to measure it, but, you know, it's pretty historic stuff that's going on with Japan so that's actually a very good gas and Yeah. Times. No, don't well, well,
0: brag. Yeah. Well, no no Newman, hold that... on. Hold on. I
2: would wait, also wait, just wait, say wait. keep an eye on that CPI cuz it was too sick last month and that's nothing. But if it's Yeah, ne- up...
0: Newman. Yeah, Newman, hold on. Hold Here. on. Hold on. Okay. My- Michael Balcon, are you there? Michael Balcon.
10: Hello. Yeah. Hey.
0: Hey, mate, Michael. Did you just hear yeah. it? we're talking about we're talking about possibly Japan being the source of the big instability, and given that I think you, you and I have are the s- senior-ranking elder statesmen on things Japanese. Just curious, um, what is the potential? When you look at charts in the JGBs and on the yen. I mean, the idea that maybe Japan is is going to be the you know is the originator of QE. It could be the epicenter for the blow-up, Because we're trying to speculate where the big problem could emanate from. When you, not someone again, you know, just looking at the charts. What do the yen, and even more interesting, what does the JGB look like to you?
10: Um, I'm, it's not on my radar screen, the scenario that was just presented. And that doesn't mean it won't happen, but um, I'm friendly to government, to treasury bonds, government bonds, 10 years, everywhere, including JGBs. So I don't think JGBs crash. The yen is out of control, but... Um, the weird thing that looks, if you look at the Nikkei, right, it hasn't gone down like other world markets because the BOJ is in there buying it. You know, they've been, they buy they own like I, I forget how much. They're like huge buyers of of equity ETFs. I think so, it's nearly
2: eighty percent, Michael.
10: Almost. Yeah. And the bonds are fifty
2: percent, by the way. Now.
10: Just yeah. So I'm not it's it, I'm not picking it up yet. So sorry about that. Uh, it's it's not. That doesn't mean it won't happen. It's just it's not quite on my radar screen yet. Okay, that's fair.
0: All right, let's keep moving here because uh, we'll, I'm going to wrap this up in about ten fifteen minutes. And George, let me
8: add that I think the the, the and the the terminal rate going over the four point five five that was priced in is actually the worst case scenario for yen. So right,
0: hundred percent. Um, all right, let's go on now to uh, Guy Serrandulo. Guy, good to see you, my friend. What's up?
14: Hey, George. How are you? Um, yeah, first off, I want to say uh, best of luck on your launch next week. Wishing you success. And um, so I just re- I'll just i reiterate some of the stuff I've said uh, in prior rooms. Last couple of times, I started off you know, by saying, this whole market is a disaster, um, you know, just the, emphasizing the bearish stance um, that I have. But I said, I'm not going to use the same word again. Uh, let me just find the synonym and, synonym. and the first one that popped up was catastrophe. And I said, oh, crap, that's exactly what I want to use. So for me, this is just a catastrophe, catastrophe unraveling. Uh, I don't get street research like I did when I was at Fido or, or Wellington, but from little tidbits I see in here, you know, some technicians or many were looking for a test of, of the June lows, a test here, a test there. But I don't see a test. I see a significant undercut. I think this next move down is going to be a big undercut of that of that low. And you know, maybe we'll get a rally of some sort. But all the, the money flow unit work that I do, which is very unique, and I don't really need to get into it here, but uh, these these targets I get were in place in, since uh, February. So in the, for Q1, uh, it's just a way of measuring flow based on price analysis on monthly and weekly timeframes. And that, that level comes down to an MFU three comes down at 3,029. I think that gentleman from London said something about uh 3,000 would be, I guess the worst case scenario for a downside, but that's where, that's where things are looking like to me on the S and P. And then you know, people should just take a take a take a look at a weekly chart of Amazon. This is what we call as technicians a classic distributive top in place. Uh, you have this whole month, you know, from July to January or so. You know, the stock really wasn't doing much of anything. They're going sideways and creating this distributive pattern. Then we get the big break, April low, and this rally we just had into um, into July was just at the underbelly of the top. So you know, the S and P looks like that. Amazon is. You know, just something that's going to break this April, um, uh, I'm sorry, the June, low. June lows from what I could see. So if you flip these charts upside down, which is something I did when I was at Fidelity to emphasize a point of how bearish your stock looked, um, you know, I, I would flip a chart upside down and say, you know, would you be a buyer of that? If you would be, then this is what it looks like, you know, the right way and you should be selling it. And I got a number of people there to sell paper stocks. Uh, it was in the 90s. Uh, and then, so what I what I really like a lot, um, and again, not to really you know tell people what to do, but the S triple Qs, the the measurements I get in terms of the this money flow unit work, it's not Elliott Wave or whatever, it's something totally different. Gets an upward target in the sixty eight area, which is really significant. Lines up with the the highs that we had earlier in the year. So that's my my biggest bet. Uh, I know Mike Belkin talked about the dollar a little while ago. I don't. I, I have more of a bullish stance. I think the, the work that I've done and I've talked about in my in my piece is going back a number of months. One hundred nine fifty was the initial target. We <coughs> get a pause, and now that and in my note I just wrote this week, once we get above one eleven, that's that opens the upside to the next longer term target, which is one twenty one. So I think the bias there has to be more constructive. Um, and then george i think one of the spaces in the past i talked about the dollar yen you just mentioned it now and i brought up my weekly chart i mean i don't know how we get here but the the way things are lining up on 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 the longer term monthly chart is 155 to 157 which is roughly the 1990 highs in dollar yen so what causes it to get there that's not you know i'm not telling you how i'm just telling you what what i see so and actually i'll just let uh, people know that in my Twitter space, I don't do a lot of posting. So I just get, I need to get stuff out to clients first, but I did put the, um, the long-term chart of the S and P on there for, you know, people to view. I do have the, the uh, current uh, the, um, the tenure there as well. Something I did yesterday just for someone to view people to view.
0: So uh, just for a minute, not no guy, um, former colleague of mine from my uh, fidelity days. We also worked together um, for a while. Um, on my second hedge fund guys, um, always got a kick on the him to speak up more. He's soft-spoken, but, um, tremendous maker. And I urge you, uh, all of you to uh, follow him. Um, he's got a rather select institutional, uh, clientele that he, um, provides research to. So, uh, but guy, let me ask you this. Um, sure. you're negative on the markets. Um, so obviously for average individual investor, you'd probably tell them to you know stay in cash, or as you mentioned, triple Qs. Um, yeah. is, is triple Qs, is is that the weapon of choice and the downside for you just because it's liquid and it's a triple levered ETF? Or do you actually think technology is going to be the worst part of the sector in the market? Or if not, what do you think, what sectors do you think are going to go down the most in a down market?
14: Yeah, for me, it's um, it is, you know, Amazon, I think, has potentially, Downside to roughly seventy bucks, which is about forty percent from here, and it being a big weight in the queues. And look at Microsoft's already dripping lower, uh, you know, day by day, week by week. So, yeah, the, tri- the S triple Qs would be high in my in my list. And I've been, you know, ninety nine percent of my work is trying to help hedge fund managers find shorts. But like, you know, I should say probably eighty percent. I still have my Fidelity and Wellington uh, former client, uh, former colleagues as clients. So. There are some uh, longs I have to put out, but everything consumer related. So the home builders, I think I I put out probably four or five shorts today uh, only because there were some that were not. They were actually down when the market was lifting and some of the peer group were uh, on the green side. So, you know, that saying, you know, kick 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 them in the knees when they're weak. So I look for stocks that are not rallying and a strong tape, whether it be, you know, one day or a few days but consumer related, uh, and, um, software have been the biggest short bets, but you know, there's a smattering here and there of a lot of things. Uh, but for me, I think the S triple Qs look great. And I would focus, uh, I would focus on that. And I just feel bad. It's just, you know, so many, so many individuals are just trapped, um, trapped long, you know, they buy and hold and, You know, we've been in the, you know, we've been on that side of the, of the pond before George, where it's, it's a, it's a relative bet. Right. And I've worked with PMs that the market's down 30%, but they were down 20% and they still get these big checks. It it just doesn't make sense. But anyway, uh, those are my
0: thoughts. Thanks guy. Please. Everyone, people really would like to hear what you have to say. So it's great when you come in these rooms and have the time. All right, let's go now. I think probably be the last speaker. Um, I'll finish up. But uh, Axel, um, Axel Merck, uh, the floor is yours. Good to see you. What's up, my friend?
15: Thank you. And I'm trolling you guys a little bit. Great space. I just want to chime in a little bit on the sovereign default and the dollar. Um, Put that just into my my framework. The way I look at it, Japan having trouble certainly would get the Fed to pivot. But I would like to caution that a smaller EM country might not. And uh, that might just be a blip. That said, If you if we're looking for ways that the Fed could pivot, one of the things to monitor are the swap lines that the Fed has. And uh, it's been minimal of late uh, since obviously since the the COVID peak in the crisis. So if that were to pick up uh, for whatever reason, that to me would be a major shift. Now, some people are suggesting that maybe they'll try to patch up the rest of the world while they're still trying to fight inflation at home. But if nothing else, if and when the the swap lines get activated, that might finally be the secular turning point in the dollar that we're moving back to a reflationary world. Um, and then depending on the type of crisis it is, it might also more domestically be that um, that we're pivoting. If nothing else, it sets the theme that we've gone kind of beyond the, the hawkish phase, if we see that. I'll, I'll stop here. Thanks very much, Axel.
0: Um all right, we've been at this for two and a half hours. You know, I was told uh, a few months ago I got to keep the spaces shorter, so I've been trying really hard to keep them to an hour and a half or more. But you guys are the problem. It's just <laughs> such good spaces; I can't get enough of it. But um, I think at two and a half hours, uh, it's it's not a bad uh, not a bad start. Having been away for a couple weeks, so with that, um, we're going to call it, bring this room to a close. It's been phenomenal. We're going to do this again before too long. You will not believe, as good as some of these rooms have been, you're not going to believe some of the speakers I've got lined up. So uh, I'm really fired up about it. Uh, stay tuned and um, stay out of trouble. And uh, see
6: you all in the next room. Take care, everyone. Good night.
8: Thanks, George. Bye.
6: Thanks, George.